Hey, what's going on? This is the Saturday Down South Podcast. I am Connor O'Gara. Will, we're recording this at, what time is it? It's like 4.45 on Monday afternoon, roughly 24 hours after Notre Dame upset Tennessee in Super Regional. Um, I think there are still people cheering about that. I do. I really do. Every once in a while, there will be an event that unites all of America. The SDS podcast Facebook group, it was this Tennessee team losing. And shout out to Tristan Smith and those boys taking their heat when it was coming because I looked at my Facebook and it was just post after post. Like, self-made memes. People were whittling memes out of corn cobs trying to slander the Tennessee balls. And I support that level of ingenuity. I'll say it right now. <laughs> it's, it brings up an interesting question. And I saw Florida Basketball Hour. Uh, they threw this out there on Twitter. In big revenue sports, pro sports, when was the last time that somebody's loss was celebrated like Tennessee baseballs? I mean, I'm talking about like everyone across a specific fan base. I'm not talking about how much Alabama fans like seeing Auburn fans lose or how much LSU fans like seeing Florida lose. Like, just nationally speaking, where it felt like this collective celebration to to, to watch a, a loss, really. Mm-hmm. I mean... Florida basketball hour throughout, um, undefeated Kentucky team losing to Wisconsin 2015. Like, yeah. all right, I'm, I'm an Indiana grad. Admittedly, we don't have a whole lot to hang our hat on with being the last undefeated team in college basketball. Yeah, sure. Ab- absolutely. I'm biased on that one. I'll admit that. Um, uh, also, they, they threw out 2002 Miami, which I don't know so much that team was like really hated. And they were the villains in the same way that like 86 Miami was, mm-hmm. where they show up to the national championship wearing the fatigues, turn the ball over a million times against Penn State. But there are a few other examples that come to mind. I'm curious if you have some as well. Like Bad Boy Pistons, of course. I mean, right. the, Tennessee was the bad boys of college baseball. 2014 Florida State is one oh, that I yeah. wouldn't have thought of. But Jameis that season was very hateable. He was. Oh, yes. Yeah, I think That's... that was the... And, and the thing about Jameis is when it's bad with Jameis, and I know this firsthand, it's so laughably bad. Like, that gif of him fumbling the ball backwards, and they were photoshopping, like, crabs onto it. I'll say, recently, dude, that Clemson loss to NC State this year was very fun. <laughs> I think a lot of people were... Very like my True. people, at least, were laughing at that. And then, yeah, I feel like that's kind of how everyone has been on the Nets. Like, just generally. I think that with the Kyrie stuff, I think that once they get to the postseason, everybody was like, oh, they're going to turn it on. And they've yet to really turn it on. And I think that that's just a very hateable team. Any big market team, like the Lakers, are always fun to rag on. So, yeah, I think. Yeah. But it's a little bit different in college football or college sports, too, because it's like, I don't know. Like, there, like there's not that big city part of it, you know? Yeah, and, and part of it, too, is with teams like that, or, you know, Duke this past year with Coach K. Oh, like, Duke losing to UNC on yeah. the day when they were going to, like, respect Coach K, and then losing again. <laughs> that was all time. The, okay, yeah, so, see, yeah, senior day, and then losing to them again in the in the Final Four. But I, I still would push back on that and say that those teams, <clears throat> and then even, like, maybe Patriots 08 undefeated team losing to the Giants in the Super Bowl, mm-hmm. Those teams all kind of had national fan bases. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, there's still yeah, like they're, they're, it's love them or hate them, of course. And there was a lot of people that enjoyed those those losses. But Tennessee baseball, it, in more ways than probably any of those teams, truly felt like us against the world. Mm-hmm. Like, is us against the world as against like the people that were in that stadium, or that that's that, that's their, their 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 that is their fan base and. We, we, I don't think we're seeing a whole lot of Tennessee fans, you know, who didn't go to the university, obviously, who are just sprouting up in, in Oregon or, you know, down in Texas. I don't think we're seeing a whole lot of that. Mm-hmm. Just it felt like very much so everybody on the outside took 
great satisfaction in watching that play out. And I don't, I don't even like to do the thing where, you know, because I know a lot of people, I saw this come out as well, where people were saying, um, Tessie, hubris caught up to them. You know, this is why you can't play with this style. And it's like, well, you know what? They have the number one ERA, the number one offense in the entire sport, and they lost seven games coming into the weekend. So I think that worked for them just fine. But, you know, that's that's neither here nor there. We're always going to play the results with Tennessee baseball. If they won it all, it was going to be like, oh, yeah, this was the fuel that got them there, mm-hmm. this style. But at the same time, obviously, the haters got to kind of have their day. So, yeah, I just think that's an interesting topic because we are, I know we haven't really talked a whole lot of SEC baseball. Mm-hmm. But that was just something that was so popular, a popular topic of discussion for basically everybody on the internet on Sunday. Well, it's funny for us, man, because we root for pretty much every SEC team. Honestly, I've rooted for Alabama at times. Like, to have a team, an SEC team, playing against Notre Dame in a sport that we, is like a you know, second or third tier sport for the best of the SEC. And we're all just like, yeah, go Notre Dame. I don't even know what we say, but we're all in here. It's like, wow, you guys really upset some people. This is impressive. I want it on record. I don't have an SEC baseball team that I'm rooting for. I really don't. Um, I, I'm I'm writing about it either way, so I don't really, you know, doesn't. It's not going to make or break me. The SEC is still going to have plenty of teams in the College World Series, so yeah, we're we're staying busy over over at SaturdayDownSouth.com. Shameless yeah. plug. Joe Cox doing a great job for us. I know I I say that like when I go on other shows and they want to talk baseball, and I'm like, well, actually, Joe Cox does such a great job talking about that. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of a lot of SEC baseball coverage on SaturdayDownSouth.com that you should definitely check out. We have a great great show lined up for today uh christian hackenberg is going to join us in a bit kind of bury the lead with that one yeah that christian hackenberg Our boy. that guy yeah um great great interview i i think we're i, I think we're gonna make a lot of people say like whoa didn't really kind of understand his perspective and all of this and was just a, a fascinating conversation with somebody who's been really transparent about his entire process his struggles just kind of a roller coaster football career that he had um then we're also going to talk about brunch in figuring it out, you've got a lad of the week for us. Mm-hmm. A very early lad of the week it was. The earliest lad of the week to date. So we will get to all of that. But first, I invented a game. I did. SEC Would You Rather mm-hmm. is what we're calling this. I thought about the, the Live Golf Series versus the PGA and how professional golfers are in this ultimate kind of would you rather because of the money that's you know they're being paid to, to sort of launch this league and where it's coming from, coming from the Saudis, all those different things. Kind of feels like it's got some like 1980s USFL vibes mm-hmm. to it a little bit. Um, I don't know. We'll, we'll, I, I realize there are different political associations with that, so I'm not saying it's an exact comp, but I thought it was a good opportunity to be able to discuss just a, a lot of different hypotheticals in the SEC. Would you rather's in the SEC? So I think we could do this periodically, maybe every few months as things change. We might have to wait until the start of the season to do something like this. Or if there's like a bunch that we left out today, and we're going to get to plenty, then maybe we'll have to circle back and do this again in August or something like this. So I have a bunch of these hypotheticals that we're going to talk through, some of which I came up with. And then the ones that we're going to get to at the end are, are you have like three in there, I believe, right, Will, mm-hmm. that you came up with. Okay. So first, would you rather? Would you rather play quarterback for Jimbo or Kirby? Boy. <laughs> Yeah, we're just going straight forward. That's what we're doing. And we're assuming in this scenario that I made up that we're talking about like a blue chip recruit, Mm -hmm. right? Obviously, Jimbo calls plays, but we know that both both Jimbo and Kirby kind of handle quarterback battles, stuff like that. This is tricky because I think there's a pretty big knock on both. Jimbo's offense is super complicated. We know how tough he is on his quarterbacks. 
Kirby isn't as hands-on as Jimbo because he's a defensive-minded coach, but the knock is that he clearly doesn't care about your talent level and he's always recruiting over you. So we, we understand that there, this is not an, an easy choice either way. If this were three years ago, I, I wouldn't have thought about it and Jimbo would have been my pretty obvious choice here. I don't think there would have been any debate whatsoever because like as tough as he is on his quarterbacks, that was still at a time, and maybe there, this is still a time where this plays, but the, the Jameis, the Christian Ponder, the EJ Manuel thing was such a plus in Jimbo's favor at the next level mm-hmm. to where, you know, we we talked about that with Kellen Mond going to the NFL. So I guess maybe we should be talking about this like two years ago. This was a pretty big topic of conversation. Um, but right now, in the year 2022, I'm going Kirby. I think given the way that he changed his offense, that's the key in this. Lost in the shuffle of Georgia's rise with this historic defense that they had last year, changed offenses, right? Changed offenses going into the 2020 season with Todd Munkin. They started to spread teams out more in the passing game. I think they're gonna have an improved passing game with some of the stuff they're gonna try and do this year. Even if Todd Munkin leaves tomorrow, Georgia is still gonna have a different offensive identity moving forward. And I think it's only a matter of time before they have a top 40 passing offense again. Jimbo, by the way, fun fact, Jimbo hasn't had a top 40 passing offense since 2016. Wow. Year year two of Jameis, which that's the third Jameis reference Mm -hmm. on this pod, which we're, what, nine minutes in? Um, Year two of Jameis, 2014, pretty hateable team, villainous team. Mm -hmm. That was Jimbo's last top 30 passing offense. People don't talk about that. They don't. Offensive genius. He's Listen, the playbook is getting open. Just you watch. Yeah. Uh, so again, not saying it's a slam dunk, but give me Kirby. Agree or disagree with that take? Uh, so I am actually still taking Jimbo. Just if you're talking about from a like personal decision standpoint, I would say you can go all the way back to Jamarcus Russell with Jimbo in fooling the NFL to get bums drafted. So for me, like if I'm a quarterback, I'm like, all right, well at least Kellen Mond, you know, what I'm saying he got drafted. He got drafted higher than Jake Fromm. So at the end of the day, it's like you can look at, yeah, your time there won't be great. Uh, but what was the last like actual actual quarterback he had that didn't get drafted? Like guy that wasn't like, oh crap, we got to bring somebody in, we got to get a transfer, we got to do this. Like guy who he's like, this is my guy. I guess he's like an elite salesman because he gets with those NFL teams, and you got like we talking about Ponder, EJ Manuel, like these guys just kind of go to the NFL. So I think that if the end result is kind of ugly football either way, as a prospect, I would probably be like, okay, I'll take Jimbo. And then on the other side of that. With the Kirby thing, it's like you're getting guys transferring out, you're recruiting over guys. Whereas with Jimbo, like he almost like I hate to say he sticks with guys too much, but it's like once he finds his guy, and and I know that Kirby has done this too, but the guys he's picked have not been blue chip recruits. So if we're talking blue chip recruits, I I gotta go Jimbo. Yeah, it, it's tough because it does feel like Jimbo kind of goes all in with his particular guys, and he gets locked in almost almost to a fault, mm-hmm. right? With we talked about it with Kelzada about why the why the offense didn't really work once he became the starter, and it was because they had designed this offense for Haynes King. Mm-hmm. And they can tell us all they want that they felt confident with Zach Calzada running the show, but if you're still gonna keep those same sort of like RPO, you know, getting him outside of the pocket, using him in the running game, if you're still gonna basically assume that it's the same guy, then you're not really 
adjusting from a coaching standpoint. I, I'm basing this a little bit more on projection just because mm-hmm. I do think we are going to see Georgia in its passing game start to take on a different sort of identity. I think that starts this year. I think it's going to have to start this year because they're not going to be as historically dominant on defense. Look, I realize you could say that a bunch, but like last year was just such an anomaly. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, it's like these first two years of the Todd Munkin era, we still have seen them at least stretch the field in ways that I, I don't think they were doing with Jake Fromm. You know, so that that would be the the pushback that I would have. I agree, but when you think about this tight end room versus this receivers room, you know what I'm saying? I think we're starting to see a team that's going to be a little bit between those hashes all of a sudden. <laughs> fair. Perfectly fair. Perfectly fair. Okay, what about this one? Would you rather have the surroundings of Will Levis or Spencer Rattler? Ooh. Surroundings. Remember, that's all we're talking about here. Surroundings. I'm not saying the arm talent or anything like that. I know we got into that discussion a lot when we talked about um, some of the pushback with Spencer Rattler and how some I felt like some people were kind of uh, downgrading him in the preseason SEC quarterback rankings discussion that we had a couple months ago. Mm-hmm. So I was thinking about this earlier. When Will Levis announced that he was returning back in December, I bet that he was hopeful that he'd get two of these three things to go his way. Liam Cohen stays, have your same OC, run it back. Mm-hmm. Good looking dude, if I don't say so myself. Um, Chris Rodriguez stays, and Wandell Robinson stays. Probably unrealistic to expect that all three of those things were gonna happen, but it wasn't totally crazy. It was at least on the table, especially with the money that Wandell could have made with NIL. That was the big topic of discussion. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it's a bit different when you get that second round projection, which that's where he went. So obviously, it made a lot of sense. Even after that happened, though, and Wandell declares, Levis is still thinking, okay, two out of those three things are still possible. Liam Cohen gets the raise, so it's looking like he's going to stay. And I, I really think that if he doesn't get the Rams OC job or a Power 5 head coaching gig, which he wasn't getting that after one year at Kentucky, mm-hmm. I, I think that's the only thing he was going to leave for. I really do. So then we know that, obviously, after the Super Bowl, Liam Cohen's gone. So Levis is like, all right, one out of three, I guess. At least C-Rod is coming back. I don't want to speculate here um, because we don't know anything beyond the DUI with with the Kentucky running back. Mm -hmm. Apparently, it was a miscommunication about showing up to his hearing. I know that KSR reported that he was facing disciplinary issues unrelated to the DUI. It was first feared that it could be season-ending, then maybe not. As of this recording, again, Monday late afternoon, hopefully we don't get cold taked on this. We don't know if he's what he's facing in terms of a suspension. I know KSR had that pick of him at the team facility, so make of that what you will. Mm-hmm. Why do I say all that? Because Levis is easily the most stable thing on that Kentucky offense. And suddenly his surroundings are much, much more in question, though he does have all bang the drum team selection, Tavion Robinson. So mm-hmm. that's the thing I like, but even though I don't think Radler has as good of an offensive line as Levis, I think there are, and South Carolina does have four or five starters back up front. I think Radler's pieces are better. I do. Um, love Jaheim Bell, underrated Josh Van, good deep field, th- downfield threat for them. DK Joyner, of course, uh, Austin Sogner. And they really like this James Madison transfer, uh, Antoine Wells, who just dominated FCS competition last year. So all that, yet in a healthy Marshawn Lloyd. I like the depth of weapons that South Carolina suddenly has. So I think I would actually take Rattler on this one. And as of December, I probably would not have. 
Yeah, Thoughts on that one? That's uh, this is a good one, man. I don't know because it's like neither of these. Even Kentucky was not like a prolific passing offense last year, and then you lose your OC. So it's like even though there's a consistency factor with Stoops, you still have so many moving pieces. I mean, gosh, man, I'm starting to lean with you here. I think it's got to be South Carolina just because the thing about South Carolina, man, the one thing we've hit at home here is they will find those skill guys. They could do nothing with them, as they've done in the past, but they will always have one or two just dudes on South Carolina that are guys that will come out of nowhere every year. You know what I'm saying? We know the guys they have, but when you think about, like, just kind of random, like, what he could be working, when we look at the end of the year, I bet I bet there'll be a guy or two that we're not even talking about there. So, yeah, I, I, think, it's, I think it's barely South Carolina. I could come to regret that. I could. I'm, I'm fully admitting that. Yeah. You know. But I, I, I just think that South Carolina has done a really nice job in a pretty quick period of time being able to put some of those pieces together. And with Kentucky, there's just, like you said, a lot of moving pieces right now. Would really help it if we could get some clarity on this Chris Rodriguez situation. But mm-hmm. at the very least, I don't think this has been the ideal offseason these last three, uh, four months. Yeah, I guess longer than that. It's June. What am I talking about? It's like six months <laughs> For, for the Kentucky offense. But yeah, um, that question will probably be debated more than once. Maybe we'll have to come back to that one during the season and see how, how wrong or right we are about that. Mm-hmm. Okay, I think I'm gonna, I might get cold takes for this one pretty early. I'm bracing for that. <laughs> Would you rather have Keishon Butte or Cedric Tillman as your wide receiver one? I've already tipped my hand on this, you know where I'm going. Mm-hmm. And I'm admitting, again, I'm going to sound stupid if and when Keishon Butte has a 250-yard game in September, and I'm going to say to myself, Connor, you are an idiot. Why did you ever say that any SEC receiver is better than this guy? He is a game changer. This guy is going to be a first-round receiver. You are so stupid to doubt his abilities. But Tillman's a safer bet. Mm-hmm. He just is. He's not the one who had ter- two surgeries on the same ankle since he last played football. Still worry about that. I think he's I'm pretty sure I saw the pictures of him the other day at Butte, and he's still rocking the boots. So I, take that for what it is as well. Yeah, I see what you did there. I knew you were going to make that connection. I just did. You could make the case that uh, Butte would succeed anywhere, and Tillman is... I don't want to say this the wrong way. Some are going to say he's a bit more of a system receiver for the simple fact that he didn't take off until he got put in Josh Heupel's offense and he started catches from Hendon Hooker and not Jared Garantano, Harrison Bailey, Brian Maurer, Joe Milton. Okay, some are going to say that. <laughs> but you know what? Actually, I'm going to say I'm going to look at that and I'm going to do I'm going to do a total pivot and say he was long overdue for some competent quarterback play. Okay, he, that that guy needed it just like DJ Moore in the NFL. Yep, this this dude <laughs> needed. Some uh, just a quality offense and a guy who can give him the ball downfield, and that is exactly what we saw Hendon Hooker do, especially in the latter half of the season when Tillman was a force. Nobody could guard that guy. And look, he's he's the guy that's been getting these rave reviews the past year as the guy who just cliche lunch pail works his tail off and has worked extremely hard to get to this point after a really slow start to his career. And there's a part of me with Butte that. I'm worried that if LSU is out of contention and if he doesn't jive with this new coaching staff that he's going to like pack it in or something. I, I, maybe that's not fair for me to say because in this hypothetical scenario, I'm just saying who I would want from my made-up team. So that's probably a bit unfair and I'm using too much context in this case. But um, I, I think that that it's at least a, a fair discussion to have. And look, I still think Butte probably comes off the board before Cedric Tillman and NFL teams will decide that they would rather have Butte than Tillman. Mm-hmm. But I, 
I, I was pretty vocal about why George Pickens as my wide receiver one last year would have scared me because we had yet to see it for a full year. And sometimes you just kind of wonder where his head is at. And I, I don't really worry about that with Tillman. So I, I'm saying give me him in this scenario. Will, LSU fan, fair or not fair? I agree with you. Um, <laughs> sorry, I've just tried to. We have three topics so far. I've defended Jimbo Fisher's offense, and now I'm siding with the Tennessee wide receiver. This is tough. Uh, yeah, I mean, so to your point about the quarterback thing, it's like those quarterbacks are all horrible. So I don't really like. I don't really think that like in college, it's like, well, you didn't succeed with a bad with a bad quarterback. It's like, yeah, nobody succeeds with a bad quarterback in college. Yeah. It's unless there's like a very specific situation, like Boutte, um in the offense that we had last year, where it was just like laser focus hit this guy. But yeah, like I hate to follow into the cliches, man. I'm gonna I'm gonna sound even stupider than you. Don't you worry. But it's like knowing kind of where Butte's at, knowing where these offenses are at. Tillman is the literal picture of consistency in the SEC right now. He's a guy that literally has been everything his team needs on offense. Anytime anything has happened on that offense, it has been him. Whereas Boutte, obviously, you know, he was amazing his freshman year. I'm not taking that away from him. He was amazing last year when he got hurt. But everything that's happened since that injury has been pretty bad, just to be honest with you. He's not done almost any of the things that you want to see from a guy who is injured. Uh, he flirted with Alabama. He has kind of been going back and forth with Kelly. It's kind of been like, oh, is he really here for the right reasons kind of situation. And like, considering Total that- Total bachelor situation, yeah. Yeah, like it's like he reopened. <laughs> Sorry, excuse that reference. We should just bleep that out. No, you're good. Well, that's that. funny because I started to be like, yeah, it's like he reopened his recruitment and just started handing out rose. But no, like, the point being, like he, he, um, I, I don't know. I just feel like mentally, like where the where LSU is and how they need to kind of they're trying to get rid of the guys who are kind of that lackadaisical like talent over everything guys. Tillman is the exact apex of that. Not saying he's not a great player. He's a big guy. He has an NFL body, but he's just I hate to fall into the cliches, man. But seems like a guy who's a leader, and that's really important in college football. Yeah, and uh, look, I think as long as both of them are on the field, both of them are going to make a ton of plays. Mm-hmm. Don't think that's that's really a question, but. As we talked about with Butte, there's also the concern of what does it look like when he doesn't have Max Johnson just force feeding him targets left and right. Yep. You know, whereas with Tillman, you know that he's he should be on the same page as Hendon Hooker. That's not really any sort of question. You know, the offense is still going to feature it. Josh Heupel cranks out top ten offenses. That's just kind of what they do. So I would give I would give the edge to Tillman in that scenario. Though again, I'm going to look really bad when Butte has a 250 yard. Game. And if you need them for a game, it's clearly Butte. But over the course of a season, it seems like it's Tillman. Oh, that's good. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. I agree with that. Okay, who would you rather have? Would you? Or, phrases can't I can't be misstepping on the name of the game here. Would you rather have Tank Bigsby or Zach Evans as your RB one? This is one of those things that gets really tough to pretend that they've played with the same surroundings. Yeah. Or that they're going to be playing with the same surroundings in this hypothetical scenario that I've created because like obviously there's concern that Tank is just going to see all of these loaded boxes just like he did in that Bama game which Goodness gracious, looking back at those numbers, 63 yards on 29 carries. We knew TJ Finley had the bum leg in that one, but man, what a rough, rough day to be able to have to run the football against that front. No, thank you. It was a Mike um, Bobo trophy game right there. That was the apex Mike Bobo game. We got a front? Let's uh, run into him. Let's show, show him what we're made of, all right? I mean, what choice do they have? Let's let's be honest here. Good it's point. Rough. Yeah. Really rough. And then meanwhile, like look at some if you if you look at Zach Evans and his highlights. 
I mean, last year you see what he can do, especially when he gets in space and he's got that home run playability. And you would project this year with what he could do in a Lane Kiffin offense. Playing running back in a Lane Kiffin offense is, looks like a really good time. It yep. does. And I just got really bummed out thinking about Snoop Connor and the fact that he's no longer in college. And I'm going to miss each and every Saturday when you would send me the gif of Snoop Dogg doing Disney, the, yeah, the little, little yeah, circle, yeah. Little, yeah, a little circle, whatever that was from uh, Drop It Like It's Hot. Mm-hmm. I, I'm going to miss that. We're not, we're not going to have that. But playing running back in Link Kiffin's offense has proven to be something that, okay, you can hang your hat on that you know the production is going to be there. So again, we're trying to we're trying to, to just tr- focus on what exactly this scenario is in which they're both in the same field with the same exact surroundings, and that is tough for this example that we're talking about. I think there's a real debate between these two guys, both third-year guys, different starts of their careers, but do some things extremely well. You know that we love that that uh, after contact stat mm-hmm. for running backs. Big big proponent. I kept saying last year when Tank was getting all the way too early love nationally that his running style was such a big part of that, and that's why you really had to look beyond the box score with him. Mm-hmm. Zach Evans in college averaged 4.8 yards after contact. Meanwhile, Tank averaged 4.9 yards per carry total last year. Boy. Again, that's not yards after contact. That's just total. His offensive line was bad. Okay, it just was. PFF had that Auburn offensive line in the bottom one fifth of Power Five. Bro, Darius Hamslam, you're on this podcast. Wow. I, I didn't. I didn't single him out. I did not say this was a Bro Darius issue, but I think Auburn fans would agree that offensive line was uh, at times sorry last year. Mm-hmm. He averaged. He still averaged 3.1 yards after contact, though. Pretty impressive. I think that's really good considering how bad it was and how many loaded boxes they saw especially in the month of November. I'm going to go with Tank just because I've seen him do it against SEC competition, and he's been that guy for an entire season. He's had some injury issues as well, but I still think that has to matter for something. And I'm willing to admit that if we're projecting 2022 numbers, there is a very realistic path for Evans to have a bigger year than Tank Bixby. Okay, Not denying that, but I I love the shiftiness of Tank. I think he does some very... DeAndre Swift-like things that are just so tough to defend when he puts his foot in the dirt like that. Mm-hmm. Remember when Georgia finally allowed a rushing touchdown last year? Do you remember that specific play? Georgia, with that defensive front, that all-world defensive front, which might have th- four first-rounders, could end up being, depending on what happens with Jalen Carter, mm-hmm. um, they basically had him stuffed in the middle, tank that is, and Tank is like, nah, screw this. I'm going to bounce it to the outside, and and he's gone, mm-hmm. just running to his left. I also think there's, and there's no way to look this up. I don't think there's any sort of analytical thing based on running backs running to their left. But I don't think there's anybody in the country who does that better than Tank. I realize that's more of like a basketball thing of like going to their left versus going to their right. Yeah. I don't know why I decided to, to talk about that. But I, I just... I love the running style, I really do, and, and I'm biased to guys who will point back at a defender from the 20-yard line and score a walk-in touchdown, mm-hmm. which we saw Tank do last year. So, advantage Tank in this case. Uh, yeah, I think I'm going to go Zach Evans, man. I, I really do. I think that just kind of a high-end factor of him, his versatility, I think that, and, and to be honest, part of this is a cold take thing because... I almost feel like him in that Lane Kiffin offense is like recession proof. Like I feel like you throw him in there, the away, the ways he was able to get the running game involved. You talk about Snoop Connor. I I think that Tank 
It's just so hard to remove them from situations, man. That's the thing. I know, because yeah. that's what I keep wanting to say. is like, what if you put Tank in Lane's yeah, offense? No, exactly. Well, we'd be having the big-time projections for him. We'd be saying is a 2,000-yard season possible yeah. for Tank Bixby. Yeah, and, and, and like it's so tough because he was just in such a bad situation last year. But just kind of like going, okay, boom, take him off their team. Which one would I rather have on LSU? Probably still Zach Evans, just because I've seen, like mm. I said, I, I've been watching this guy embarrassingly long about time because he was supposed to go to LSU at one point in time. And I think that just kind of like I said, I think I just think the versatility, I think that a, a the one skill that Tank, not that he only has one skill, but he has one of his skills is more elite. You talked about moving the pile. You talked about like that that style of like, just being a tank, and that's what he's elite at. But I think that across the board, when you talk about kind of like the screen game and like kind of what a modern running back is asked to do, I think that Zach Evans is a little bit more of that. Now he still has a lot of those concerns that I just brought up why why I would take Tillman yeah. over Boutte. But I think that when you factor in kind of the injury slash you know situations that Tank has been in, I think he has a lot of miles on his legs at this point. And Zach Evans, say what you will about the situation, but he hasn't really played a ton. So I think that he has yeah. fresher legs too. Had the toe injury last year that essentially wiped out his latter half of the season after he had like what, like 500 yard games. Mm-hmm. He's a great player when he's on the field, no question about it. But I, I do think that's gonna be something that maybe we'll talk about when these preseason All-SEC teams come out at SEC media days and Tank, barring an injury, he's going to be a first-team guy. Oh, yeah. He just is. And I don't think Evans will be there. It'll be in part because it'll be like, okay, we need to kind of see you do this in the SEC before we kind of give you that type of respect. But would not surprise me at all if he is a first-team All-SEC back by season's end. Okay, let's have a little bit of fun. Would you rather transform into Bryce Young or Arch Manning? (laughs) In this scenario, uh, you just get to live their life through them. That's what we're talking about here. All the same abilities, the whole deal. Remember, with Arch, there's the the NIL angle of this, right? He's going to get NIL throughout his entire career. And as we've seen, the value of being either a recruit or a transfer instead of being on a roster and not going anywhere is pretty lucrative, though we know Bryce is doing just fine for himself in that department. He's going to have no shortage of, of cash by the time he gets to the NFL. Also keep in mind, Arch is bigger than Bryce. He's 6'4", 215. He's going to add weight once he gets to college. Pretty good genetics, last I checked. Decent, some I'd say. say. Yeah, some would say. I'm just waiting for there to be like the the plus 150 odds placed on Arch to be the number one overall pick in the 2026 NFL draft the second he steps onto a college campus. I'm going to get that email. I don't know who it's going to come from, (laughs) but it's coming. I'm fully aware of that. We know the scrutiny is going to be off the charts for Arch. It's going to be off the charts for Bryce next year as well. Go look at the way that we talked about some of these guys in their pre-draft seasons. Trevor Lawrence, Justin Fields, Lamar Jackson, Deshaun Watson, Tua. These guys who were established stars, and when they came back, you can go back individually to each one of those seasons and find moments where we're like, ah, are they really getting it? Like, is, is there something wrong with them? And Trevor Lawrence is a little bit tougher because 2020 with COVID and whatnot, but 2019 more so was where we were starting to kind of question like, ah, is he, is he really that Andrew Luck prototype that he's been made up to be? We, we criticize these guys, and Bryce is going to be subject to a lot of criticism, there's no doubt about that. I think I'd still want to be Bryce. Mm-hmm. I think I would. If you're Bryce, you already know that you can dice up SEC defenses. You diced up arguably the best defense of the 21st century, in my opinion. 
you've shown that you can sort of roll with that pressure and pretend like you have doubters. Again, I have no problem <laughs> with him pretending that he has doubters. If whatever, if you, if that's what you have to do to type into that level uh, mentally, then by all means, go ahead and do it. Uh, but it's it's the old known versus the unknown. Okay, and, and I know that we think we know what Arch is going to be, and reality is we really don't. I mean, not not officially at least, not in the same capacity that Bryce does. In this case, I think I'd like having the stability of knowing who I am at this level and understanding that I may have real doubters at the next level mm -hmm. when that time comes, which is fair because of the frame. But I still feel like if I'm if I'm Bryce, I'm closer to achieving all of my hopes and dreams. Uh, I'm at least closer to that than Arch is at this point. Yeah, being somebody who's gonna enter his senior year of high school. Both probably gonna be just fine in life if I had to place a wager on that, mm -hmm. but not really a wrong answer here. Where, where do you stand on that? This is, this is maybe my favorite one of these because with the arch option, you're basically playing Road to Glory from Madden, right? Like you're or from the NCAA, like all the way through yes. Madden, where it's like you get to play your high school season, you get to commit to whichever college you want to. For me, in that spot, it would probably be somewhere random. Like it would be like Hawaii or something. I'd be like, you know what? I don't care. You guys are going to draft me number one overall. I don't have to win anything. Goodbye. I'm going to the beach. Uh, no, but yeah, I think it's great because Bryce is already like, if Bryce gets injured, he's probably already set to be an NFL player. Like his money is more or less made, right? Where Arch, despite what I just said, still has to play college football. And from like an injury standpoint, something could happen to him. But from like a dude standpoint, I think it's Arch. I think if you have a you have a year still to destroy people that don't even play football in a year, then you go to college and you can just kind of when you talk about the frame thing, it's like I I just feel like he's so set up to succeed in college football because like. We've talked about so many guys that are like coaches' kids. Um, Jalen Hurts is a great example of that. It's like, all right, mm. like dude who was living, eating, breathing football, and it allowed him to overcome like some of his limitations and stuff. And like with him, it's like he doesn't have any of those limitations. He has been eating, drinking football since he was born, and he has this frame. And I think that his years in college are going to be the most fun in the world. And like I said, that's why if I were him, I would just go somewhere random and not have to deal with all the pressure. Because like with Bryce, it's like he's going to be compared against his old self. And while Archer's going to be compared to the other Mannings, it's like, hey man, like the end of this, the end of this goes to the NFL pretty much no matter what he does. So I don't know. I think either one would be pretty awesome. It's tough because it depends also how you, if you care about your legacy and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. if, it, if that part of it matters to you, then there's a case to be made that Arch is very likely going to come up short of that. Whatever, whatever sort of expectations there are, he is likely going to come up short. And that's, there's, there's still a lot, of, a lot of places where you can come up short and live an unbelievable football life mm -hmm. and make tens of millions of dollars and be just fine and, and, and have a perfectly fine career. I, I wonder, I wonder, the only thing I wonder about with Bryce is like, are we sure, are we sure we've seen his ceiling? You know, I, I, I've been a proponent that I, I don't think he matches his numbers and that's going to be held against him in the Heisman discussion, which is silly mm -hmm. because why should you be competing against the previous version of yourself? You should be competing against the rest of college football. Right. But are we sure that we have seen what he's capable of? Because I thought he made some mistakes last year. I did. I think that he's still learning how to be able to, to not make that catastrophic mistake in a key spot that just kind of kills you in a way that certain other quarterbacks just flat out did not do. Mm -hmm. And I like Tua had to learn that as well. Tua's still learning that. Who are we talking? Who are we kidding here? <laughs> um, but but I think that's still something that that could make his game even better. As crazy as that sounds, so you could say 
being Arch Manning on a college campus for three years, however long he's gonna do that, be pretty sick, all right? It would be. But at the same time, I still probably, this is just more of the way I'm wired, I would take Bryce Young as more of the sure thing mm -hmm. just because of what I feel like, how close I am to that opportunity. Dude, he's 20 years old, man. We were talking about this dude like a grown man. And it's, it's, we know that. Like we, right. If we had asked, it would be like, yeah, he's about 20. But like, golly, man. It's crazy to think that he is just viewed like the complete product. You're absolutely right. He has a lot of growing still to do. And yeah, I think that just, I, I don't want to, the, the, sky's, the sky's the limit for him. I think it's a great choice. If Bryce were 6'4", we would still be talking about his potential and his growth. But instead, there's this belief that just because you're, you're maybe a little bit closer to maxed out physically, mm -hmm. then you are not necessarily going to be able to dial into even more potential. And may, maybe I'm looking at that a little bit obtusely and I'm not necessarily considering all the next level eyes on him and what that conversation would be like, but I would, I would still take Bryce in this situation. It's, good, it's a good discussion to have though. Yeah. You can't really go wrong with this. Okay, another can't go wrong. Would you rather get two more years of Brock Bowers or one more year of Will Anderson? <laughs> this is why we gotta play this game more often. That's a good question. I think you can make a really, really good case for two years of Brock Bowers. Mm -hmm. I do. I can tell you on his upside playing an incredibly difficult position at such a high level in year one and what that means for him in year two and year three. He basically played half of his snaps in line versus the other half, which was like in the slot or on the outside. So that's why he is a true kind of hybrid tight end, wide receiver, whatever you want to call him. When Georgia needs to dig deep, he's good for at least 50 snaps. He's not some low volume tight end or anything like that. He's already really solid as a run blocker, mm -hmm. which is supposed to be the area that freshman tight ends suck at. And Brock Bowers does not suck at run blocking. He just doesn't. This he's is a crazy dog in him, as the kids say. The kids do say that. Many Georgia fans also say that as well. Yes. This is the crazy thing. He was the best offensive player on a team that just won a title. How many times can we say that about a true freshman? 2012 Mark Cooper. Maybe 2018 Trevor Lawrence, but I'd probably go with ETN mm -hmm. because he was uh, first team on um, all ACC that year. If you went defensive, 2019 Derek Stingley. Mm -hmm. Surrounded by a ton of NFL talent, obviously, as well. Right. The, it's just, it's really, really rare to be saying that about a true freshman on a national championship winning team. Think about how rare it is to say that a tight end is the best offensive player on a title team. I know, like, OJ Howard, best individual player in that specific title game. In this specific game, yeah, but that's specific the guy who's been duping game. me for years, too. I'm waiting on yes. that breakout, dude, like, hands, like, just ready. Like five catches for 208 yards. Yep. For a tight end. It's just silly. Um, 2001, Jeremy Shockey. Mm. That's it. But he's, he wasn't a true freshman, you know? Yeah. 2012, Tyler Eifert, if Notre Dame had not just gotten housed by Alabama. <laughs> Um, that, that, would, that one would have been interesting. But again, those guys aren't true freshmen. I think it's still crazy to think about Trey McBride winning the Mackey Award and Bowers not even being a finalist, even though Brock Bowers was clearly the best tight end in college football, and you cannot convince me otherwise. Mm -hmm. uh, what he did lining up across from SEC defensive ends and SEC corners, more impressive than McBride doing that against Mountain West competition. Just going to say it. You know. Sorry. The thing is, they threw everybody at this guy, too, in the hardest conference in America and the playoff, and it just didn't work. Like, one thing you can say about Georgia's SEC championship game is not they stopped Brock Bowers. <laughs> 
Wars. You can say like all kinds of other stuff, but pretty much every game it was like this guy's getting his. On the on the interception though, there was there was that play where it was a pretty pivotal point in the game where he was he should have gone underneath the zone coverage and instead he goes over the top and it's one of those things where it's you like the fun game of inches. He still had a good game. Come on. Yes, yes he did. And he still tore him up in the fourth quarter and you know some Alabama fans are going to listen to that and say, "Well, that was cuz of the defense they were playing." Brock Bowers doing that against an Alabama defense is still pretty impressive in my book. He's not a human being. So don't take what I'm about to say as proof that he is actually a human being. Mm-hmm. Okay? Don't I'm giving the slightest, the slightest of nods to Will Anderson. One year of Will Anderson versus two years of Brock Bowers. I'm only doing that for this simple reason. Will Anderson is in more control of his own destiny than Brock Bowers is. Mm -hmm. Brock Bowers still needs competent quarterback play to maximize his ability. What does Will Anderson need? I would argue he hasn't had that for some of his career too, to be honest with you. <laughs> Against Florida, didn't didn't have a healthy knee, still found a way to be really dominant in that game. Yeah. I don't know who stops Will Anderson from not just getting to the quarterback, but from just getting to whoever is carrying the football. If there's one question I have with Bowers, it's it's that. It's it's how how dependent is he on 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 that stuff, on the quarterback play, on, on the offense, getting targeted, all those different things, which Again, like he's been able to kind of rise above that, but does he have that savviness yet to be able to kind of find that soft spot in zone coverage so those plays don't happen in the SEC championship? That could still come for somebody who, let's face it, as a true freshman, was as good as any Georgia fan could have ever hoped for in their wildest dreams. Also, someone who didn't average four catches a game, not quite there. So I just think that Will Anderson's impact is greater than that. PFF had him down for 141 pressures in the last two seasons. <laughs> See, this is another Six. reference to that Road to Glory thing, because that feels like that's not possible. That feels like those numbers right? that you would put up at NCAA when you put it on like rookie mode and you were just trying yes. to get drafted high. That is ridiculous. 60 is a true freshman, 81 last year. He needs three pressures to pass Jonathan Allen on Alabama's all-time list since that stat has been tracked, which I realize that doesn't date back to like the Derek Thomas days, so don't, don't get too offended by that. But the pressure stat is interesting because you probably already know the raw numbers if you're talking about Will Anderson and how great he is. 154 tackles, 45 tackles for loss, 24 and a half sacks, and that's for someone who is entering year three of college. Yes. <laughs> I mean, that, that is just, it's, it's silly, but those pressure numbers show that he is a force unlike anything in the sport right now, okay? He, he is my best returning player in college football. I, I think that that argument goes to him, like without question, and over Bryce, I really do. It, if he doesn't get 34 and a half tackles for loss again, Oh, well, I don't really care. I don't care if his overall numbers come down. Like, I mean, think about the fact that he did that on the heels of a breakout freshman season. That, that's the part that, that to me is just mind-boggling mm-hmm. to think about how productive he was. So I, I'm going to take one year of Anderson, and I'm sure there are Georgia fans who will tell me I'm crazy, but I just, I'm, I'm just not going to bet against Will Anderson. Seems like a bad idea. Yeah, if you get 81 pressures in your college career, they build statues for you in some places for doing that. <laughs> that is so Say it's crazy. Like for your career. He did that in the season. Yeah, I mean, I I personally, gosh, this is a really hard one, man. So uh, it depends on what stage your team is at, right? Because I I 
I personally would take Brock Bowers. I have to like remove all these teams and just say like, okay, boom, my team, right? So it's like, okay, Will Anderson, if you are a like, this is tough because Brock Bowers just won a natty. Okay, so let's do it this way. Let's do it this way. You, you've got maybe, you've got like a, a franchise going <clears throat> in, um, in NCAA football or something like that. And you know that you can only get them on a specific contract. So if you can only get them on this specific contract, you're an athletic director, whatever the case may be, Brock Bowers is going to be there on that two-year contract and Will Anderson has a one-year deal. What do you kind of do in that scenario? Yeah, so I don't know, man. I mean, if you're going to view it like that where you're starting a team with him, it's it's got to be Will Anderson. I mean, I'm like, I'm talking myself into the Bowers thing because I love him so much and I think that as a weapon, he's almost at this point like unmatched in the SEC. But with Anderson, man, I mean, every freaking play was a chance for him to just ruin the other team's game plan. Like, completely flip a game. We saw it in so many games. So yeah, I, I actually think that like you say, he's the best player in college football. What am I thinking? Let's just take him. Yeah, let's just take him for the one year. And yeah, it would be great if... if and that's why this is why you have to do... And of course, this is the exact situation. That's why you have to do one year for Anderson and two years for Brock Bowers. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I just think knowing that that guy is going to be on the field for you each and every Saturday is just a weapon. Like nothing you could probably have from a defensive standpoint in the sport right now. Okay, let's end with these... Three, these three that you came up with. Do you want to do you want to read these off? Do you do you have these in front of you? You lost power. I don't have power right now, so you you gotta kind of lead this ship here. Yeah. All right, that's fine. That's fine. Uh, Okay, so would you rather have Joe Milton or T.J. Finley, or flee to a foreign country? (laughs) I was gonna say, uh, C, none of the above. Uh, I'd go Finley. I'd go Finley just because. They're, they're very different players, though, in what they try and do. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that Finley, while we've been very critical of him, and I, I think fairly so, I think I could still rely on him in a situation where I have a great offensive line and I know I can protect. With Milton, I, I don't know what, what his ideal scenario is. I really don't. Mm-hmm. I, 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 we're still searching for what that is. Heading into what? This is his year four of college. I think it's he was twenty twenty at LSU. So yeah, it was twenty twenty one, twenty two. No, for for Milt. Oh, I'm so sorry. I Milton. thought you were talking about Milt. Yeah, he's had a whole other career. You're absolutely right about that. Yeah. So that that would be my pushback is I, I've seen T.J. Finley have some success against SEC defenses. Not the level of success <laughs> that I would want to have for my starting quarterback if my job was on the line. But I've at least seen some of that. Whereas with Milton, I'm like, man, I. I just saw him with an offensive coordinator who just cranks out top 10 offenses and it still just wasn't there. So yeah, give me Finley in this scenario. It's gotta be Finley or fleeing to a foreign country. Um, what was number two? <laughs> okay, uh, would you rather have Lane Kiffin's offense or Kirby's talent? Yes, so real quick huh. real quick explanation on this. So basically, you know, we've talked about those are two things that are pretty much here to stay, right? As long as Lane is here, he's gonna have this system. As long as Kirby is there for the foreseeable future, they've figured out the NIL thing, they're gonna have talent. So I'll, I'll pick that as a starting point, you can go from there. Kirby's talent. Okay. Talent wins. Talent wins in the sport. I'm, I'm not here to, to try and pretend that, that anybody could have Kiffin's offense because I think he's truly one of the best offensive minds in the sport. Mm-hmm. If there are if there are five better offensive minds in the sport, I don't know who they would be. I would put him at the top of that list, no doubt. 
But if I'm trying to win championships, give me Kirby's talent. <laughs> that, that's the thing that, what is, what is everybody killing to try and get right now? More talent. Yep. More talent. They, they can talk all they want about this development. They can talk all they want about having the right staff in place. College football is still driven by talent. National championship reflects that. College football playoff reflects that. That's a boring answer, but that's the foundation that I would rather have and feel like that's going to give me the best ability to be able to maximize that. Where Kevin's offense is, is tremendous. It, it really is. And we've seen it have a lot of success. Also seen it at a place like FAU where it wasn't a guarantee that they were going to have a ton of success as well. Mm-hmm. Whereas Kirby's talent, so far, so good. Ever since 2017, just cranking out top seven finishes. Obviously, there's scheme that's involved in that, of course, and it's not just as simple as having talent. But yeah, uh, give, me, give me Kirby's talent because that, that to me is the best common denominator of a title team. So let me ask you this way then. Which one do you think is harder to replicate? Because if I gave you that scheme and I said you had to go find the talent, would that be harder than I'm going to give you this talent and you got to go find a scheme? Because the thing about Kirby is, you know, with Munkin, more or less, they figured it out last year, but I'm still not going to totally give them a an A on that. I think that their offense was still pretty limited last year, and, and Kirby has proven that it's really hard to find that guy with the scheme, you know? You know that, Cur- that Georgia had a top 10 offense last year? I believe it. I, I mean, but that's one of those things. That's one of <laughs> a lot those of short things. fields. No, no, no. You talking? I was about to say based on what metric, because it was a lot of short fields. If you're doing scoring, I bet yeah. because their defense yeah. was, you know, getting the ball back and putting them in great positions. I think it's harder to replicate the talent level than it is Kiffin's offense. Okay. I, I think there are only a few teams in college football that can operate with the depth that Georgia has, and I think there are more elite offensive minds that in the right situation could make it happen. Now, Kiffin makes it happen at a very high level, and I'd be hard-pressed to take many offensive coordinators, offensive minds over him, but I, I still just think that that Kirby, if you're, if you're talking about winning titles, that's that's the most important thing. Now, if you were talking about all of a sudden, like, I guess, you know, a, a fran- like a, a program that just needs any sign of life from so an offensive standpoint. So let's imagine you're an Indiana know, fan. Are you t- <laughs> you're taking, I'm sure you take Kirby in that situation, yeah. Yeah, I'll, t- I'll take Kirby in that situation. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, last one. This is a good one, too. Would you rather have the money of a program like A&M or a great athletic director like Arkansas has with Hunter Yerchek? It's tough because, obviously, it's hard to separate those two things mm-hmm. because I still think you need to have, even if you have money, you need to have a great athletic director. And while I am not crazy about the parameters of Jimbo Fisher's contract, I have to tip my cap to what they've been able to do in the last four and a half years. I don't need to look this up. I just know this is the case. AM is the only program in the country that can say football, men's basketball, <clears throat> baseball, women's basketball. They have poached a sitting power five head coach to fill those vacancies. Not like a coach who was getting fired or something like that. Every single one of the coaches that they got to fill those vacancies, you're like, huh, all right. That's pretty good. Oh, see, LSU did that, but barely because the uh, Notre Dame, I guess, is not technically Power 5, and then Murray State, I guess, is not Power 5 either. But, okay, I see what you're saying. Yeah, 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 Murray Murray State. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, doing that that is is not an easy thing, and obviously money is a big part of it. Mm -hmm. I think Hunter Juracek has done a tremendous job. I, I really do. I think that what he what he's been able to put together in terms of the big revenue sports you're essentially asking what situation would you rather have for the next 10 years right mm-hmm. i mean cuz both of them have set have really set up their athletic departments 
up with a potential golden era. Mm-hmm. That's what we're talking about for Arkansas and a and I think that is on the table for both of them as it relates to their, uh, we're mainly talking about big revenue sports, so we're not just strictly talking about football. I probably still go with money. <laughs> that sounds bad. Mm-hmm. That sounds bad. I feel like I'm selling my soul to the devil here. But <laughs> if if I'm just an athletic department as a whole, and I know that money is there, I, that that's what I would probably want. Now, the difference is: are we talking about this from a fan perspective? If I'm a fan of one of those programs, I or think if I'm like as, a donor or something like the, that, as like a supporter, yeah, because a donor is a whole other thing. Just as a so as a fan, yeah. I'm still going to take money. Mm-hmm. I'm still going to take money in this scenario. But it is a good question. And I do think that Arkansas has stretched a dollar in ways that a lot of Power 5 programs would dream of. Uh, not just with the Sam Pittman contract, the way that it was restructured, but with what they were able to do with Eric Musselman, obviously, and then Van Horn with what they have in, in, in baseball. A hundred year check has done his job very, very well. But... What are we going to say if he makes a hiring misstep? What are we going to, you know, that's that's something that I think is a little bit tougher to correct. And it's great that he's gotten these these hires right, but we tend to define these athletic directors by that one wrong hire that they make, and that's kind of all that it takes. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you got money, you got a chance to flip that sucker real quick, yep. real quick. So yeah, I'd give a slight edge to A and M in this in this. Uh, discussion. Yeah, you've convinced me. I do think there are plenty of programs that have money, uh, aka, you know, Nebraska. I don't need to go down the Texas. whole list. Yeah, Texas. Like, I don't need to go down the whole list. Uh, but you, you, we, we, we're all aware of who they are. And I think that having money sometimes can be a curse when you can't figure it out. Um, whereas I think that if you have a great AD, I think that your floor is a lot higher. Now, that being said, if you could just magically give me one of these two, I think it really depends, because yeah. obviously, you know what I'm saying? It's like, well, if you're a Middle Tennessee State fan and I want to give you billions of dollars, obviously you'll take that. Um, but yeah, I think that both are pretty equally important. Um, but I think that some ADs are almost kind of, I hate to say like recession-proof, but there are some ADs where it's like, even if you get the best of them, they still find a way to come around and like, oh, wow, we lost this guy, but we got this guy. So I do think that part of the relationship part of it is so huge. But given one or the other, it's always going to be money, <laughs> yeah. Money is gives you a greater margin for error. Mm-hmm. It just does. If you're a great athletic director, your margin for error is, is, is pretty slim. And I don't want to necessarily have to worry about, oh, man, like two out of those three hires were awesome, but that one was mm-hmm. a real clunker, and it set the program back. Whereas if you got money, like A&M does, like A&M you know, had, what, 13 consecutive trips to the NCAA tournament in baseball, and then all of a sudden they're like, oh, hey, we don't make the tournament. Let's go hire this dude from TCU, mm-hmm. uh, Jim Schlossnagel, who's you know, got as many College World Series victories of, of any active coach at the time he's hired. Like, you can do that yep. if you're A&M. And you can flip that in a hurry. So that's what, yeah, I'd give a slight lean to, to money in that. Well, those, those are good. Those are really good. One like quick those. anecdote on that. One of my favorite quotes, my sister gave this to me. She said, the thing that money buys you really is options. And that's exactly what you just said. It's like, you can make a mistake and come right back. You got that option. But yeah, like you said, if you're Arkansas and you sign like a big deal like that and it goes south on you, you're stuck. Yeah. Yeah. Both, I think, have a, a very bright future ahead. The 2020s in Fayetteville, in College Station, should be very, very promising, given what both of their athletic directors have done mm-hmm. in uh, pretty different ways, I would say. <laughs> We're going to have to come back to, to Would You Rather, though. I like that. A lot of great hypotheticals. And once the season gets started, we'll have plenty more, I'm sure, that we can dig into. Um, all right, let's kick it to Christian Hackenberg. I think regardless of 
what you think about his career and the way that things turned out. I think that you'll develop a new understanding of what he went through, both you know college, NFL, and I just think he's a really, really interesting guy. So here is Christian Hackenberg. Not excited to be joined by a very special guest. It is retired quarterback, former Penn State quarterback, Christian Hackenberg. Uh, Christian, I, I know you're you were trying to to get some looks in baseball uh, as a pitcher too, throwing throwing some gas. But you're you're doing the coaching thing now. You're on the media side. I know what you're doing with uh, the field of twelve, getting into the podcast world. Do you refer to yourself as a retired athlete, or are you going to be you know making some sort of a comeback to an athletic field? Because we did talk before you came on about your your golfing prowess. So I don't think you should say retired athlete. I probably just mislabeled you. Yeah, no. Um, the baseball thing was fun. It's funny. My dad will say this too. So my two youngest brothers uh, are playing baseball. Now my one, Adam, who played at Clemson, he was a catcher. He got drafted by the White Sox last year. So he's actually down in Winston-Salem in single A. I think they're about to bump him up to double A here pretty soon. And then my youngest brother has been pitching down at Virginia Tech this past year. So they just got knocked out of the Super Regional yesterday, which was a bit of a bummer. But he had a he had a hell of a year. Um and uh, excited for his future. So baseball was always kind of a thing. And my dad actually tried to push me to baseball my senior year, um, which was weird. He was a football guy, football coach. My whole family was, was football, 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 but he really pushed for it. Um, and then that thing kind of got blown out of proportion. I was throwing with a guy down here who had some, he had some major league contacts, some guys that threw. And then one day, you know, there's cameras and all this stuff. And I was just kind of tinkering with it to see, um, but yeah, it was fun. I just didn't have the time to dedicate to it. You know, kind of what we were touching on, had a, had a wife, had a house, you know, was finishing up school, trying to figure out what the next steps were. And I'm kind of an all in or all out guy. And realistically speaking, I would have probably shipped myself off somewhere for about three months and just grinded that out for a little bit. And, uh, you know, life gets in the way. Right. But no, definitely not a retired athlete. Um, but you know, more of shifting from the professional side to now just, beer league, softball, golf, uh, you know, whatever else I can get myself into. You got the facial hair for beer league softball too. Like okay. that, you, you have the look down, down pat oh, yeah. pretty good. Like oh, yeah. you could, you, you could definitely like, you're, you're one of those all or nothing home run guys at the plate. Aren't you? Well, we, so we play with wood bats and no fence. So Whoa. yeah. So it's pretty much rip and run. Um, and then I just play the outfield and, try to try to hose guys. So it's, <laughs> I, I enjoy it. And I usually try to keep the beer to a minimum, you know, during the week. So, you know, three or four, keep me, keep me, keep me on, keep me right at the right equilibrium to, to make sure I'm tracking things down, but not just a complete train wreck out there. How hard were you throwing in 2020 when you're just messing around? Like, I, cause I saw, I saw some of the stories where you're hitting North of 90. Yeah. I was like 93 to 95. Um, you know, like I said though, dude, it's, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, like that's, that's a guy who's a power guy. But now if you're 94 to 95 and, uh, you know, granted, I probably had some more room there. If again, I focused on it and really got some timing and some things of that into account, but you know, out the, out the box, like that's, that's an everyday guy now. So, you know, just the, the whole transition of that game and the, and what, what that means and the chase for speed and power at that, at the pitching position. Um, it, again, it just, I wasn't there from a commitment standpoint and where I need to be. But yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, I got that, that gift given to me and, um, you know, fortunate for it. But like I said, just the, I'll let my little brothers do all that now. Yeah. So. 
So, so doing the coaching, I want to talk about, um, obviously we're going to dig into to your career and whatnot, but, um, you're, you're right now doing, doing coaching stuff with a former team of yours, South Jersey. It's, that's, that's where you're living and, and kind of taking a, a different approach to, to the football stuff, just kind of, uh, fill us in kind of on where you're at, what, what kind of you, you're hoping to be able to do with that in the future. Yeah, man. Um, you know, it's something that I've always, I've always knew that I would eventually get into, um, you know, my grandfather was a high school coach for 30 years. I grew up on the sidelines. My dad coached when I was younger. So if I, if I wasn't, my mom coached volleyball. So if I wasn't in the gym with her, I was on the football field. Um, so being around that, you know, it kind of gets ingrained in you and you always have that, that itch. And I've been fortunate to have a good stretch of coaches, you know, youth college level and high school level that, that influenced me the right way. And, you know, I just felt that getting into the high school level was probably where I needed to be. And it was fun last year just because of the purity of it. You got a lot of kids who um, are looking at you and you have a lot of, you you know, you have a lot of experiences and being able to, to give them some of those experiences, give them some guidance. And here's where I did things well. And here's why I didn't do things so well. And if I knew this earlier, you know, so being able to impress that on somebody at such a young age um, and at a real influential part in their career, while the game is still about football, you know, you take out all of the, um, extracurricular activity that comes with being a college player at a big time program and a, and a professional player. Um, it's about football and that's what I love about it. And, and being able to do it with a former teammate, like you mentioned, you know, Bill Belton and I, um, he was an older guy when I was up there and, and we had a really unique relationship. We were tight in the locker room, didn't spend much time with each other outside of the locker room just because of the dynamic of it. I was a younger guy and, you know, he had kind of already ran that course up in college, but, um, getting able to reconnect with him and, and help him out. That's been awesome. And we got some great kids and I, you know, it's, it's been super rewarding and I've went into it with zero expectations, but I'm excited to see how that all plays out. I love, I love hearing that. And, and guys like yourself who just miss being around the game and, and getting that opportunity. It's I, I read the, the story that Audrey Snyder did for the athletic about, you know, how, how he's telling it, you know, a bunch of people like right after you guys had that conversation, how cool it was to be able to be like, I have all these kids saying we got Christian Hackenberg to be like our quarterbacks coach. Like that, that's crazy. But you, you have something to be able to give back. And obviously you're recognizing that. Um, I, I think anybody who ever watched you saw the talent that, that you possessed and, and what it looked like when things were rolling. I mean, I've said this before, not necessarily to your face, but you were the prime example of, of a guy who you could put together a five minute highlight clip and convince somebody that you're Jesus Christ playing quarterback. I mean, really like your highlights are, are at a different level. Take me back to, to your recruitment. You were the, the five-star guy who was seen as this, I mean, monumental get for Penn state because of all the looming sanctions and all that stuff. And, and amazingly like 17 of your 23 commits stayed with the program, that class, which is incredible. How close did you come to, to not going to Penn state yeah you know so i'll kind of attack that from a couple different angles so i think my recruiting process specifically was more of a unique approach i was fortunate you know i was just down in down in virginia and my high school coach just got inducted into a hall of fame at fork union which you know isn't eddie george introduced him like it's not a it's not your typical high school hall of fame and he played a huge role in it. And then going back to what I was saying, you know, my dad played at Virginia and my mom was an all American volleyball player at Lehigh. So having both of them with great perspective in that process and what you're trying to get out of it. Um, I had a great team around me and to be completely honest with you, I was a three sport athlete. I played football, baseball, basketball. Um, and 
now being in the coaching world and kind of what high school sports has become and how much pressure a lot of these kids put on themselves for scholarships and things like that. Like I didn't have any of that. When I got to Fork Union, Coach Sullivan sat me down. We laid out a list of like, if you're good enough, um, where would you like to play? And now we have to back that up with a process from a weight room standpoint, uh, on the field performance standpoint, all these things, we have to back that up. And we started that as a sophomore. I was a sophomore, you know, I was freaking six, three, 165 pounds soaking wet. So yeah, you know, we really laid out a, a, a long-term plan and what you're looking to get out of a school from that point in my career that I want to play professional football. I mean, since I could touch football, I want to play in the NFL. So that played a huge role in it. And that ultimately ties into why I ended up at Penn state because ironically Penn state wasn't even on my radar when I was down to like my, 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 my last five, um, I was pretty much signed, sealed, delivered to Alabama. Like I was going to Alabama. Um, and, uh, when coach O'Brien got the job, um, it was really unique. I've, I've told this story before, but we had a guy who actually played for him at Duke, who was working with our postgrad program, Norman G. And he was like, Hey man, I know you had Penn state on your initial list. I was going up to play pickup basketball in the SD center. And he's like, I got a, I got bill up there. You know, I played for him. I think he'd be a really good fit. And he just came from new England. You know, you're talking about wanting to play in the NFL. Like this guy's running a pro system. It's it'll really fit your skill set. this and that and the other thing. And I was like, yeah, gee, whatever, dude, send my tape up there. And I went up and played basketball for four hours. And then, you know, three days later, Charles London's downstairs in the SC center. And, you know, we're talking about a scholarship and getting me up on campus and getting me to learn everything. So that kind of happened really fast, but ultimately when I got to Penn state and, you know, going back to what coach Sullivan had initially laid out with me in terms of academically, athletically, and socially, what you want to get out of school, Penn state checked all those boxes. And then in some areas, you know, check plus, um, when it came to ultimately what my goals wanted to be. So, um, that's kind of what led me to Penn state. And then once I made the decision, my parents were very, they were very adamant about, you know, it's not a, this isn't one of those things where, you know, you kind of float around and you kind of soft this and soft that, like if you're going, you're going. And unless something completely out of just left field comes in, which ironically kind of happened, yeah. <laughs> you know, you got to think about it, but you know, even when that did happen, we went back to our checklist and was like, did anything really change? Like no bowl games, no, like at the end of the day, yeah. Do you want to go compete for national championships and playing cool bowl games? hundred percent. But at the end of the day, net, net result, again, playing in the NFL and, and playing in a system that's going to really prepare you for that. It didn't change. And then, you know, the impact you have on a school like Penn state, you know, largest alumni base in the country, you're talking about 800,000 living alumni, like outside of football, having stuck through that, you know, I'm starting even now just being more separated from the game and, and even separated from Penn state, you're starting to see the impact that that's had on people. You know, you go up there on campus and you talk to people and, and that's the first thing they bring up. They don't bring up anything about, you know, on the field, this, that, what could have been, it's this very sincere. Thank you. And that side of it grew as I was on campus exponentially um, as a main reason why I stuck it out. Okay, the Alabama stuff, because that's before, just to, to 
tell people at home, like the timeline of this, like you're a 2013 recruit. And yeah. so this is before Lane comes in and reinvents the offense. So at that time, you're probably thinking to yourself, I could be an AJ McCarron type role in that system where he obviously had a lot of success and they changed the offense. Of course, when, when Lane gets there, but like you said, science field delivered kind of what was, what was the background, you know, did most Saban come to your house and like being able to pitch you just kind of give us the, the details about that. Yeah, so Saban flew in actually to Fort Union. It was a funny story. We were playing pickup basketball with our postgrads, and that's like that was like a big thing. Like our postgrad football and our postgrad and our regular high school football. We had probably three or four kids in my class that could play. But we we ran some serious games up there, and Saban actually came in to school that that one day. And Mike Grow was recruiting me, and Mike knew me. My dad actually posted Mike at Virginia, so Mike's known me since I was freaking nine years old. Um, so they came in and forget I got a guy at the top of the key, crammed the ball right as Saban was walking through the, through the doors, like right underneath the hoop. And he goes, who the hell is that? And my dad's like, Oh, it's Christian. He goes, have him throw three footballs. We're done here. And um, <laughs> so, uh, but, but talking about that specific situation, you know, obviously coach Saban came, he's established a program there. That's, that's, I mean, to this day is still running. And I think his standard in terms of development of players is huge. And I always liked those coaches who were kind of not, not about the fluff, you know, they were about the, the process and then the results at the end of it were going to come as long as you put the time in during the process. And I looked at that situation, you know, I think AJ was playing at that point in time and the system was great, like work off play action. You know, you're going to be probably accounted with having to execute on five or six third and medium to third and longs a game, but stay on schedule work off play action, get outside the pocket. Like that fit my skill set. you know, to your point, like pushing the ball down the field, intermediate to deep passing game. Um, and I really, I really like that. And then you got guys out there that can, that can really get it and make plays. So that's what really drew me to that, to that situation. I, I got to imagine the the negative recruiting stuff for you was all over the place. I know James Franklin talked about that a lot and I realized he wasn't recruiting you um, at the time, but I, I even remember talking about dropping some of that negative stuff. <laughs> yeah. I mean, goodness gracious. Like, that had to be all over the place. I remember talking to, to Miles Sanders at the Under Armour All-America game, and that would have been at the end of 2015 because he was a 2016 recruit. And he was saying, oh, yeah, you know, I'm thinking about Michigan State kind of as my fallback just in case stuff happens at Penn State. And it's like, what are you, what are you talking about? You're like a month away from signing, and you still got yeah. people that are calling you and telling you, hey, stuff can blow up and it, it can hit the fan. And I, I, I imagine that when you were going through it, like you were really dealing with those, those phone calls where people are like, Hey, you're never going to be able to, to play in a bowl game, do this, this, and this, like what, what exactly was that like that experience? Yeah. I mean, that happened. Right. And obviously I think recruiting's even evolved to another level since I was there with social media. And there's a lot of different touch points now that you can get in touch with these kids. And <clears throat> Like I said, kind of going back, I was really, really fortunate to have the people around me that I did. And like coach Sullivan was a huge buffer for me. Like anybody that came to school that said, Hey, we want to talk to Hackenberg. I either get called to the athletic director's office, sit down with him and be like, Hey, you know, X, Y, Z school wants to talk to you. What do you want to do? I'd be like, nah. So he served as a really good buffer for me, at least, you know, on campus touch points. Um, but yeah, you dealt with the phone calls and things of that nature, but I always try to handle it in, in the most professional manner. You don't want to burn bridges with guys, but just try to make them understand that, you know, and I'm sure it was, it was probably weird coming from a 16 year old kid and having that type of perspective. But like I said, it was, it was 17 year old kid, but it was, 
a lot of credit due to my, to my circle. And, um, they guided me through that. So it, it alleviated it, but I can only imagine if that was the case now with everything going on like that, it would have been, it would have been insane. You, uh, you definitely passed the eye test as a true freshman 2013 that, that year with Bill O'Brien. And I talked to, to your buddy, Adam Brenneman about this. Um, you guys were just, you, you were discovering something that I think was really promising and people kind of forget how bad it could have been based on expectations. And you win big 10 freshman of the year. I remember watching that Wisconsin game, just thinking this, this kid is on his way. And it really looked like it was all clicking. Why did you work so well with, with Bill O'Brien and some of the concepts that he had? Yeah, I think, you know, again, that was part of my evaluation process and I really liked the system. And not only that, he gave me so much flexibility and it was, it was to the point where like every time I got in a game, I wasn't thinking about execution really like from a, this was the play call. Like I was, I was thinking like, is this the right play for what they're giving us? So I almost got lost in this, in, in that process of like, I'm just trying to get our team in the best situation possible, whether it's, you know, run to run, pass to run, run to pass, whatever it may be he gave me a ton of flexibility at the line of scrimmage. So when I got into something or if something was called, I knew what he wanted out of it and the whys behind all of it. And it just made it so much easier for me. And there was a ton of study on, on defenses and, and how to defeat it. And that was the biggest thing. I mean, he taught me so much about the game and, and that was, I think outside of the physical tool sets, just the ability to really get lost in that process and almost playing the mental game as much as you were the physical game really meshed well with me. And I was, as the year went on, I got faster and faster with it. And I, and I had answers and like that Wisconsin game. I mean, I still talk about this. Me and Chris Borland went back and forth three or four times at the line of scrimmage. Like that guy was unbelievable. And he'd call checks out and I, you know, reload it, disco it, try and get in something else. Like, so that was really fun for me. And I think Bill having the trust that he had in me, and then also teaching me along the way, like I, it sucks because I felt like we only scratched the surface. Cause again, I was 18 years old and I felt really, really good about it, but you know, everything, everything kind of happens for a reason. And, and it was what it was at that point, but I just felt like that system really fit my skill set well in terms of how I approached the game, both mentally and physically. Do you remember what it was like when he, uh, when you found out that, that he was going to the Texans? Did, did you have like some sort of sit down where you just think to yourself, man, like this is, this is just like the gut punch that I wasn't looking for right now. Yeah, dude, it was New Year's Eve. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it, it was, it was interesting. Um, and you know, again, it, we've, he and I still have to, you know, sit there over a case of beer and talk through that at some point in time. And I'm sure that'll happen, but it was hard because I respected him and I knew kind of that was his end game and end goal. But at the same time, and I don't know if Brennan and you touched on this, but like he, to your point, like we kept 17 of the 23 guys in that class that made it through and like everything outside of football for what it meant for the program and university and the alumni and the letterman. Um, you know, he kind of wanted, he told us he was going to see us through. And when it didn't happen, that was the only side that I held, that I still hold a point of contention was like, you had kids who literally sacrificed their futures at times for this. And you ran for the money, which is cool. You know, again, I understand it's a business and it's capitalism. You got to do what you got to do. But 
that was kind of the, that was the only thing. And, and, you know, I'm over it at this point. And like I said, you know, I'm sure he's doing well and moving on from everything that happened with that. But it, I think it was just a really cool situation and it was bigger than football and it was bigger than the business of football. And had he stuck it through, you know, who knows what happens, but that was, that was really the only like mental side of things in my brain that I fought with. Um, and there was a lot of other things. So I, I didn't blame him, but then there was still a part of me that was like, gosh, man, like, you know, we still got, we still got some unfinished business, but again, you know, things happen. How many pops deep were you on new year's Eve when he found that out? <laughs> I was doing a keg stand actually. What? No yeah. way. All right. You can't just gloss over that. So you yeah, got to tell that story. And, and my phone starts buzzing and I thought it was my buddy calling me from, from the house next door. And I started kicking my legs and was like, let me down and pick it up. Didn't even look at the caller ID. Like, hey, what's up? What's up? Hack. Oh, coach, what's going on, man? I'm going to Houston. And I was like, uh, no. <laughs> yeah, dude, this is actually the first time I've ever told that story. So that's, that's a, that's a big thing. But yeah, man, I was doing a kickstand, um, up at JMU actually, cause JMU was only about an hour from my house. And we had a, uh, we were, um, you know, we had a bunch of buddies that were at school there and we had that long Christmas break because we didn't have a bowl game. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, so that's how I found out. And then I walk in the house and it's all over ESPN and it was super awkward the rest of the night. And I was just like, I'm over this. So, um, but that's a funny one that I get a hold on. And, you know, I laugh about it now. My dad still bust my balls about it, but it was funny. So there are, uh, there are buzz kills and then there's whatever that is. That yeah. is, uh, that's, that's a its, own, it's its own, it's its own category. Goodness. Did you, uh, did you see eye to eye with James Franklin? You know, I think it's hard. I think, I think he was in a different process um, in terms of what he was trying to do when he got on campus. And I think really those two years were when we probably got hit hardest with the sanctions from a depth standpoint. And you're talking, I mean, 60 to 70% of our team were freshmen, redshirt freshmen, or redshirt sophomores. So you had a lot of guys who can play a lot of football. I mean, shoot, Brian Guy and Derek Dowry were – defensive tackles their first two years. And then they were starting guards for us. So like there was a lot of fires that we had to put out. And at the end of the day, I think it's a huge testament to everybody involved. The fact that we didn't have a losing season in the three years that I was there with all of that. And I think that's something that doesn't get talked about enough about those situations. And ultimately like when you're coming in with a completely different mindset, cause they were very different. Him and Bill were very, very different. Understatement. In terms of like how they wanted to run a program and how they wanted it to be. Like Bill was kind of like football, football, football. You know, when you get in this building, it's sacred. He, kind of, he ran it very much like a pro locker. Like, you know, you get what you earn, you know, in terms of leash and live and, and, and things like that with everything that's going on on campus. And, you know, if you're playing, like we're going we're gonna to treat you like a pro. Um, Jane, coach Franklin was very, um, you know, kind of like wanted to create buzz, wanted to get more marketing media, wanted to pump money into the program and build new locker rooms and new weight rooms and things of that nature. So there was just a, it was just a very different approach. There are very few times when I will watch a football game and feel bad for a guy, the 2015 opener against temple. Um, 
that was one of them. So for those who don't know that game, you got sacked 10 times. It, it actually felt like it could have been more. And I watched it back this morning. I was like, Hey, you probably could have gotten sacked 15 times that game. I mean, it was, it was rough. And I still say though, and I actually kind of forgot about this, that the ball that you had to Deshaun Hamilton down the left sideline, if that's like a yard, like in that, that's, that's a touchdown at 17 to nothing. It's probably a different game. And that, that day just turns out much differently. The offensive line play, you talked about that. That was that was the biggest thing. And for those who don't know, kind of the, the Penn State story during the 2010s, that was the biggest point of concern, what was really hit hard. But can, can you explain what that day was like knowing that you were just a sitting duck? Yeah, I mean, it's hard, dude. Like, we had a lot of expectations because we came up – I mean, we just beat – the, the, I mean, all spring, like we beat Boston college, who was a top five defense in the pinstripe bowls, our first bowl game back. Like that was a huge, it was a lot of momentum going into that season, I think. And, you know, understanding everything that was going on, you know, we had some experience, we had a good spring ball, we had a good camp going into it. Um, and to be completely honest, like, and I don't want to discredit Matt rule and that temple team. Like that was a really good football team. They were, it was a very good football team and they have a lot of guys that are still playing the NFL off that defensive roster. And, um, you know, they did a great job, but it was, it was frustrating. And I think that's, that was always the hardest part. Like we were kind of a Jack of all trades and a master of none. We really didn't have an identity on offense those last two years in terms of like, this is what we want to do because we had a hard time running the football. So, you know, down in distances were, you know, second, second long, you know, those types of things. And that's the one thing that I, that I look back on my career and I'm like, I just wish that I would have done more to focus on like, how can I keep us out of those situations as much as I, you know, there's things, there's things that I could have worked on and got better at, but at the end of the day, like it was just about putting out a bunch of big fires and then make, taking advantage of shots when I got shots to be able to do it. And I think that was the hardest part. And that game was just one of those ones where like, it wasn't clicking. It wasn't rolling. We couldn't really do much. You know, we had a couple explosives early and we were out rolling, but then once they kind of figured it out and dialed it up, it was, they kept us, they kept us off schedule. And when you have a team that, you know, you can't turn around and hand the ball off and guarantee you're going to get three and a half, four yards, four yards of pop. Like, it's, it's tough. And you needed, we needed to create a little bit more of an identity from that standpoint. And yeah, that game wasn't fun. I would Sunday morning was definitely not fun, but you know, that game was, it was one of the worst losses in Penn state history, I think. But, um, you know, again, not to discredit that temple team though. It was a good football team. Yeah. They had three guys drafted on that defense alone. Like they, they, you know, it's Matt rule. It's still like, it ended up being a much better. Who's that guy? Manikavich or whoever that was. And he just probably like, he was in your ear the entire game. It's just, it's brutal. And, and I think people could look back on stuff like that and they'll see, you know, Saquon, they'll see Kisiki, they'll see, you know, Chris Godwin, and they'll see all these guys and they'll say like, well, why didn't it work? And to that point, I would say, well, you know, look at 2018 LSU, like 2018 LSU had Joe Burrow it had Jamar Chase, it had Justin Jefferson and had all these guys, Clyde Edwards, Alaire, but it still goes to show you, you still need the right offense. You still need that offensive line. And that's really kind of what, and you need the right play calling, the right philosophy to be able to make this thing go. Like I I think I look back on your career and I I always kind of wonder if that was, if that day had gone differently, if that could have been a potential turning point. I know you had a tough sophomore year, but was there, was there ever a moment where, you know, in the back of your mind, we always talk about like quarterbacks seeing ghosts, the Sam Donald thing. Was there ever a moment where you felt like, you lost some of that confidence and the game kind of changed for you? You know, I don't think, I don't think I ever really saw ghosts because I didn't have a problem taking it in the teeth, but I think like, you know, getting now into what 
happens subconsciously as a quarterback. Like there were a lot of things that got messed up with me mechanically. And then I never had time to fix it because I had to get ready to go play the next week. So it was, there was just a, like I said, like I said, just overall process, it became much more less about like my own development. And I'm talking not only on the field, but then like, again, going into the big picture about like Penn state and keeping the program alive. It was less about my development and more about like keeping the ship afloat, like, like driving the ship. I don't care if we're down two or three turbines, like we still got to keep the ship going in the right direction. And that's kind of what my approach was. And that's my only, it's not even a regret. Like that's the only thing that I can look at in my career and say, like getting hit as much as I did, like that's going to affect me subconsciously. And then me not being able to truly develop from a technical standpoint in my game for two years, because I'm just like, at the end of the day, it was probably my issues were on our list of issues somewhere down here in terms of what we needed to fix in order to keep things going, because I compensated at times to be able to keep us rolling. So that's like, that's the only thing where for me, you know, I look back at it and like scars, I think scars less than ghosts. I think it's just more scar tissue, like scar tissue built up and it, it just didn't work out. Mechanically. What would you, have, what would you have been able to, what do you think you would have tweaked that would have, that would yeah, kind of helped? There's a lot of things. And that's a, that's a, that's a really long conversation, but um, you know, ultimately I think I actually got to them, but it was too late um, in my career and you know just tightening some things up cleaning up the feet but like again it was just when you're constantly like not sure what's going to happen specifically in the pocket um i guess there are ghosts there but like i said i would more dedicated as scar tissue and then you know just being able to speed things up and, and trust it i think for me what was the toughest moment for you during college? Cause I, you know, the, the, the moments that you had that were, you know, where you just come away and everybody's like talking about the first round stuff all over again. And then, you know, you're still able to, to go into the combine, put a good showing together enough to where it was like, all right, you know, there's, there's going to be a team that's, that's going to take a chance, you know, despite the, some of the mechanical issues that you're working through, but what was, what was kind of maybe the, the toughest, the toughest moment to be able to kind of just, you know, strap it on and, and be the politically correct quarterback who, you know, was ultimately couldn't show any sort of fault. Yeah. I think, I think you hit it with my sophomore year. Like my sophomore year was, was cause it started off with a bang over in Ireland. I think 450, like awesome. But then the middle of that year was the biggest grind of my life. And I actually like going into my junior year because I had an idea that like, I just couldn't, I physically couldn't stay there and do it again for another year. If that was going to be the case. Yeah. Kind of had an idea. Like I, I you know, I just, I want to have as much fun as I can my junior year with everything that's going on and just have as much fun with it and love, love the time with my teammates and let it fly. And however the cars fall, they'll fall. But I didn't have that perspective going into my sophomore year. And I think that was where I learned to have that perspective going into my junior year. So I think my sophomore year, kind of that, that middle of the season was just like, that was, and then I ended it, you know, in the pinstripe bowl with another really good performance, but that, that like middle part was, that was, probably the darkest. I mean, I was radio silent on my parents, my high school coach, my girlfriend at the time is not my wife. Like I was very, very shut down in a box, like not, not really good mentally. Um, but you know, having to try to overcome that was, was probably one of the better parts as well. You know, having, having put myself through that and then having to get through that, I think it's only prepared me more for, for being able to handle everything else that came down the pipe. Your girlfriend forgave you. I mean, that's, 
Uh, that's all that matters in the end, right? Yeah, that's a big win. Stacking, stacking wins off of it. Yeah. Um, but what do you think your college career, your NFL career could have been like if, if you had those, those three years with Bill O'Brien? Yeah, I don't know, man. Um, you know, I try not to try not to live in that, live in that hypothetical world. I'll live um, there for you. That's fine. <laughs> yeah. You can live there. You know, I, who knows, right? Who knows? But, um, you know, at the end of the day, that's not how it happened. Right. Um, and kind of bringing this full circle, like, I think who knows, like maybe what I, would I have had the ability to then articulate things and then be forced to go try and learn like where I could have gotten better and did. And it was a little too late at that point in time in my career. And now like I have the opportunity to bring that to these kids at the high school level. So like, again, like bigger picture, everything happens for a reason. Um, those experiences I think are invaluable and it's just going to make me a better person, better coach, better teammate, you know, better brother, better, better son, all those things. Um, so I try not to live in that hypothetical world, but you know, who knows? But I, I, the only thing I do know is that, that, that freshman year was awesome. It was really good from all levels with me. And, you know, I mean, even going back to that, like I said, like the, I mean, my, my offensive line that whole year was like, Ty Howe, who's now coaching there. He was a fifth year guy, you know, Deef, Gret, like there was a lot of guys there that played a lot of football and we stayed healthy and they, you know, they allowed me to make my freshman mistakes and then be confident to know that I can still make another call or I can get into another play and run another check and they'll help me clean it up. And then by the middle of the year, they trusted me hard, you know, and that's, that's the one thing I say, like everyone asked me about like freshmen stepping into that situation. Like you just got to get your teammates and your coaches to trust you. And I, I had it. And then, you know, your talent takes over. So, um, that's, that was like, that was huge for me. Best story from draft night was what? What's that? Best story from draft night was what? You know, I don't know. I mean, we had a great time. I kind of kept it tight knit. We were at my house. Um, I didn't really remember much of draft night after, after the phone call, but, um, it was, it was great. Like it was just, something you never forget. And again, like ultimately going all the way back, like that process started when I was two years old. So to see it kind of come through to fruition and, and all the experiences in between, um, I think it was just getting that call and then, you know, being able to enjoy it with the people that, that ultimately helped shape a lot of that path. Did you get, a, uh, were you, were you doing a keg stand when you got the call from the jets? No, no, no. I was playing cornhole. <laughs> you're probably a really good cornhole player aren't you i like playing cornhole yeah we we used to take it super serious and you know since i've moved up here and not with my i mean there were nights my brothers and i would sit out there for freaking hours and my dad and, you know damn near come to fist fight over some some of that stuff but yeah i do enjoy it i do enjoy some some boards and some beer pancakes you gotta you gotta throw pancake style if you're not throwing pancake style like i, I don't know what you're doing yeah. Like get out of here. Like you're, you're a casual, as they would say, you gotta, you gotta be throwing pancakes all day. Um, I, I wrote multiple times about, I, I hated how protective the jets were of you um, throughout that preseason. And like, I, I get it. You know, you talked about the mechanical issues that you're, you're trying to work through, but I'm like this guy had all eyes on him at Penn state. So you can't tell me that the New York media is going to like beat him up. And Oh, by the way, you took a beating. So it wasn't like you were going to take a hit and all of a sudden you were going to be scarred from it. What, what do you think kind of made them sort of treat you with those kids gloves? And, and was there maybe a method to their madness that we didn't really see? You know, I don't know, man. And I think that's, you know, obviously I have a ton of, uh, 
a ton of respect for the organization because they did take a chance on, you know, they, they drafted me and there's, there's part of that, you know, mutual relationship there where like, you know, they made my childhood dreams come true. Um, but I just think it was a really unique situation. It was a loaded quarterback room. I mean, I was the fourth guy in there and we kept four throughout that whole year. So like that usually doesn't happen. Um, and I think just the overall game plan for me wasn't great. And then, you know, you talk about drafting me in the second round. Like, there's a lot of expectations that come with that. And if you want to handle somebody in more of a developmental way, the slot and the, the process kind of never matched up. You know what I mean? And that's where I think in the NFL level, like, almost getting drafted to a good situation is, especially at the quarterback position, is much more important than where you start in terms of where you get drafted at. Right. And I think that that's where, that's just where the disconnect was and, um, you know, not really having a, a, a set in stone plan of development and, and wanting to have that and not really getting the answers. And then, like you said, like having to fight battles on a lot of different fronts that really I shouldn't have been fighting at 20, 21 years old. Um, cause that's the other thing. I mean, I was young, like yeah. I, I was 20 my entire time I was training. I couldn't even go and get a beer. So, um, you know, it was, it, there was a lot of, there was a lot of like timing and situational things that went with that, you know? So it's kind of like, that's a double-edged sword. Right. Um, but you know, ultimately again, it's just one of those things like unlucky situation, unlucky plan. And, you know, did I learn a lot from it? A hundred percent. And it probably has absolutely nothing to do with football. You yeah. know what I mean? And that's cool. Right. You know, as lo- I feel like as long as you take that approach and you're not bitter about it, um, you know, you're going to be cool on the other side. And I think it's opened my eyes to now like making sure that every time I get in a situation from a coaching standpoint or whatever it may be, even, even doing some media stuff, like I really try to empathize and, 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 and dive deeper into that side of the, that side of the story. Cause I feel like it's often the side of the story that gets overlooked by a lot of people and they don't realize how much of an impact that can actually have on some kid. Um, subliminally, cause they're going to, every kid's going to deny it. But subliminally, like that's always there. And if you if you can't analyze that side and you're just analyzing strictly on a on a stat sheet or or you know numbers, like anyone can do that. You can teach anyone to read a stat sheet and be like, oh, that that's a solid performance, right? But like when you're sitting there talking about the holistic approach to it and the quarterback specific position specifically, because to me it's the most dependent position in sports. There's not any other position in sports that has that many people that, you know, you could do your job perfectly. And if five guys don't, it looks like an absolute shit show out there. Um, It's just, it's a different, it's a different animal in its own sense. So that's the one side that I really now start looking into, like even, you know, high school level, like I evaluate what our kids do well and I push our offensive coordinator to do that. And if you don't, if you try to stuff a square peg into a round hole consistently, you're not only going to hurt yourself, but you're going to hurt the kid. And, you know, I'm just very, I'm much more cognizant and aware of that side of things. And I think a lot of people just because of my experiences. Yeah. I, I think you will be in that way. And I almost, I hate using the phrase cautionary tale, but there is some of that with, with you and your story and watching you kind of go through this, this criticism where man, like from, from being 16, 17 years old, pretty much for, for a five year stretch, you really could not be lit up for air. There was not any sort of, Hey, you're going to be out of the spotlight and kind of taken away from this, this pressure that your talent has brought upon, like in obviously the way that you 
you played your freshman year, but you know, I, I think we've kind of danced around this. Is there maybe one, one sort of, what if one thing that you could go back and change in your career? And I know you've been asked that before. I see you smiling, of course, but like, I don't know, even if it's transferring after 2014 transfer rules were different at the time. So maybe that's not even the best way to go about it, but is there like one specific thing that you would be able to snap your fingers and change? Is, is there anything? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think, I think we touched on it. You know, I think obviously like having the year I did and all the correlation, like at the end of the day, the expectations got set way higher than you could consistently produce. Right. So like for me, I think, you know, obviously like I would have loved to have Bill for three years and that's not knocking coach Franklin or any of those other, those other circumstances. It's just like, I fit really well. I knew what I was doing and like going into an off season at 18 years old, like I was fired up for the next year because I knew what was going to happen. There was no change. There was no, you know, deep rooted uprooting of the entire process. Um, so like, I guess what if, like, I wish I could have had a few more years with Bill, especially in that like really incremental development stage. Um, but again, like it didn't happen. And I think I just got, like I said, I've gotten developed in a lot more different ways, you know, other than playing the game. Right. And, you know, those things I think are going to carry on much more than, you know, had I gone on to do whatever from an on the field standpoint, like, I feel like that's great and all, but it's the lessons I got taught are much more valuable. I think in the grand scheme of life. Right. And that's my approach to it. I am the number one Joe Moorhead podcast on planet earth. So I'm contractually obligated to say that the correct answer to that question was leaving early and not being able to play a year with Joe Moorhead at Penn state. That too. You know, that's, what's funny though. I honestly, you know, I, cause I met with coach Moorhead right when he got on, but like I said, it was just, I was just at that point where it was like this ship had rode its course. And I do say that, like, I think I did leave a, a year early. I do say that on the side. I'm happy you brought that up because I completely just lost my mind. <laughs> Completely left my mind, but you know, uh, was a huge fan of the way he ran things, and I think was at that point in time the stability that Coach Franklin needed from an offensive side of the football. And to your point, like you talked about, like Kasiki and Saquon and and, and and Chris and all these guys running around, but they were all puppies. Yeah, like fourteen to fifteen, like they were puppies. And like I don't know if you remember fourteen, Kasiki, Kasiki couldn't catch a beach ball if he dropped everything. And I, I could say that because I still talk to him all the time and I love him to death. And, you know, I was probably part of the reason why he ended up coming out of the other side. We lived together. I was throwing everything I could at him at the house, can of cool whip, whatever it was. <laughs> catch him off guard just so he could, I'm like, see, you can do it, dude. But he, um, you know, it, they were puppies. And then when Moorhead got there, like they were coming into their own and it was just a really cool process. And like even trace, like, having trades for two years behind me. Like I, I love that kid to death and like so happy that he got into that situation with his skill set and kind of like, it was like, it was very similar to my freshman year stepping in with bill where like I stepped into a system with zero scars, zero expectations at the college level. And it just fit. And I think that happened with trace really well. Um, and I was super happy for that team and the way that they, they went on to do things. And I think a lot of it did have to do with, Joe Moorhead and his process and his thought process towards things. I'll put that in the file, the, the pro Moorhead file that I keep on, you know, uh, just on my desk right here. That's it's always there. So we'll, we'll definitely add that to it. Yeah. Um, I, I want to get you out of here with some rapid fire, just five questions. First thing that comes to mind, does that work? Sure. 
I, you, you gave me a look like I'm going to give you, I'm not going to, come on. I don't throw 95 on the black like you do. All right. We'll, we'll be fine. What would your, uh, what would your dream NIL deal have been? Oh, I'm simple, man. I'd have taken like a jacked up F-250, like clean, just drive it around. I was driving, I bought a, I bought a Silverado from my, my uncle who actually was in the military and the thing was an 01, low mileage, didn't do anything, but I'd have, I'd have killed to have like a, a nice truck. Yeah. You would have had that before you stepped on campus. There's no doubt about that whatsoever. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, uh, I assume that anybody who spent time in Pennsylvania is a fan of the office. So your favorite character on the office was who? Uh, that's tough, dude. I mean, Steve Carell, like it's hard to not like, it's hard not to, to like his, his whole, I mean, that thing was, he did an incredible job throughout that entire series. So the entire, his war, like, leaving that show that's that's the baseball stat war like yeah. the, his his level above wins above replacement is just insane obviously because it went downhill after him but yeah, yeah. i agree with you yeah. um a little birdie once told me that james franklin was a psychopath before that 2014 opener in dublin uh can you confirm or deny that all i'm gonna say is is i spent a week in dublin right outside of dublin with a beautiful golf course that I could walk to and I didn't even hit a golf ball. And my dad and his buddies landed in Shannon and played like six courses the entire way up to Dublin. And they're sending me pictures and sending me videos. And I was just like, I, I can't believe I'm in Ireland and I haven't hit a golf ball. So, yeah. So that, I mean, I'm not going to say a psycho, but I just didn't have the time to do that. And that would have been, that would have been important to me. It was very regimented uh, from, from what I had heard. And then, by the way, that's not an Adam thing. That's a, I had, I actually went to Dublin and like went to the Irish, the Irish games that they had there. And I remember talking to like one of the supervisors there and it was like, yeah, that James Franklin guy, man, he is nuts. Absolutely yeah, nuts. We were, we were extremely regimented. Yeah. We expect nothing less. Um, okay. Where would you go to school if you were Arch Manning and you're not allowed to say Penn state, by the way, obviously, I mean, shoot, dude. Um, it's hard. I mean, it's hard. I, I was on the Georgia train the beginning of the year last year. Um, I think that I, th I, I love Kirby, but it's funny, like all of his, all of his options kind of branch off the Saban tree in some way, shape or form. So I don't think the kid can go wrong. I do want to say this though. I love the way that, that he's handled everything. Um, and I expect nothing less from the Manning family. I had some time. I was able to spend some time with them down at the Manning camp when I was there. And um, I think they've done a fantastic job with that. Just keeping them out of the spotlight and keeping it fun for them. But like, I don't know, man, I, it, it'd be, it'd be tough not to, not to go to Georgia. Last one for you. And I guess kind of similar to that. If you had to give a piece of advice to any high school quarterback, what would it be? Uh, yeah. I tell this to our kids all the time, like have fun and enjoy it because, and I'm talking like the high school game. Like, just enjoy it. Like, the process is going to take care of itself. It's going to run its course. And at the end of the day, you know, where you get recruited and who you get recruited by is probably going to be where you're going to be able to go out and play and, 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 and have fun and have a good career. But enjoy the time under the lights on Friday nights because it is, to this day, and I think you can talk to a lot of guys, they'll say that's some of their most fond memories, and it's so pure. Like I said, it's just there's some purity with it. Like, enjoy it. It's what the game's about. Hack, this was a blast. Absolute blast. I've been wanting to do this for a long time, man. I really appreciate the time. Best of luck with everything you got going on. No problem. Appreciate you too, bro. What's my destiny, Mom? You're going to have to figure that out for yourself. 
life is a box of chocolates fullest. You never know what you're gonna get. Figuring out we're talking about brunch today. I'm not sure why brunch is an adult thing. <laughs> you know, it's mm -hmm. kind of weird. For whatever reason, I can't remember attending many brunches as a kid. I don't know why. Just not really a thing where I grew up. Probably because I wanted my three meals and I wasn't down for any sort of combining meals <laughs> stuff. What? That wasn't happening, okay? Mm -hmm. As an adult though, you know, we go to brunch every few months. We went to an all-you-can-eat brunch for 19.95 on Sunday. It was good, Ooh, it was really good. Okay. Shout out to, yeah, F&D in Longwood. Um, I'm sure maybe eight people listening to this know what I'm talking about. But anyways, lots of food was consumed. Shrimp risotto, salmon pizza, this pancetta Benedict that was outstanding. I, I think, a delicious Benedict is my go-to brunch food, mm -hmm. whether it's salmon, skirt steak. Tibby's has a, uh, we, we love Tibby's on this podcast. Oh, they yes. have a, a crawfish Benedict that is out of this world. Good. Yes. If anyone is going to Omaha for the College World Series as well, um, go to Wheatfields, get the crab and lobster cake Benedict. Thank me later. All right. Send Send, send me a thank you letter to my house. It is that good. You just can't go wrong with a Benedict. And I'm not even the biggest Hollandaise guy in the world, but... Man, phenomenal, phenomenal brunch food. It was a good meal overall. Um, I love eating, but I'm not usually an all-you-can-eat type of guy. Mm -hmm. I'm not. Um, I feel like the value isn't that great. I, I feel like it plays tricks with us, the all-you-can-eat premise. If you give me all-you-can-eat steak for 30 bucks, I'm probably not physically capable of eating $35 worth of steak, like $40 <laughs> worth of steak, depending on, depending on what we're That's talking That's where we're about, different, right? my guy. <laughs> <laughs> right? I'm getting $60 yeah. out of that meal minimum. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I also don't like, and this isn't specific to brunch, I guess, but when you do the all-you-can-eat thing, they usually bring you one plate at a time because mm -hmm. they don't want to waste food. I, I, I don't know, like F&D wasn't like that for, for what it's worth. They're, they would come up to us and say, you wanna order a few more things while I'm here? Wanna, wanna order three or four different things? Service was great, but it, it got me thinking about what we consider brunch. Mm -hmm. Is it all about the time that it is eaten? Or, you know, like if you're eating at 1130, is that in the brunch window? And why is it that we only refer to it as brunch when it's on the weekend? It's like gotta be on a Sunday, right? Good point. I've never what? had a, well, I guess I have, but I haven't officially had a weekday brunch. That's a good point. I, Friday brunch, make normalized Friday brunch, mm -hmm. okay? That's what we need to do. Um, what if I'm just eating lunch before noon? Is that brunch? <laughs> no, I guess not. I, I don't think we're gonna define brunch today. I don't think that's the goal, but I think those questions are, are worth asking. Also, mm -hmm. why is quiche maybe the best brunch food if you are hosting? Easy to prepare. Ooh, true. Crowd pleaser. Everybody can kind of serve themselves. That's really my only childhood memory of brunch. Maybe once a year, my mom would have friends over, like, and it'd be like some late morning thing. I don't know why or what, like, who this specific group of friends was, but she would make a quiche, and I always consider that adult food when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. Now your boy can whip up a fine quiche, just just as I did for Easter. So let's go. I, I am pro brunch. Definitely pro brunch. Will are are you and Brittany? Uh, big brunch people. Yes, we're definitely like late nighters on the weekends, and that's our struggle is to go to bed early enough to where we can make a brunch. <laughs> I feel like we are very like night owl type people, and so it's like, all right, hey, look, we gotta get up at X time or whatever, and you know, get down to this place for this brunch, especially because in Atlanta stuff kind of like 
uh, really fills up. So our move is to go a little bit later to the brunch so that when that big swell comes in, we kind of hit the tail end of that. Not like around closing, but you know, like if the brunch ends, let's say the brunch ends at, you know, two, we'll get there at like 12.30 type vibes. So we can be totally out of there by the time they're ready, but it's gonna be after everybody, you know, the post-church crowd, all that different stuff. So yeah, there's some awesome brunch places in Atlanta. Um, I just hit one um, last weekend that of course I'm blanking on the name of, but um, yeah, it's, it's um, I wanna say it had the word egg in it, egg harbor, I wanna say, okay, boom. So anyway, <laughs> so yeah. That it's, sounds like a brunch place. It sounds like a real place that I just definitely didn't make up. So yeah, I think it was at egg harbor, actually, so all my buddies there, but yeah, point being, very pro, and, and my, my go-to now is a skillet. I think that if you can make anything mm. into a skillet, bro, throw some grits or potatoes in there as your base. Get you this one I had last weekend had a short rib in there, bro. It was eggs, Ooh. short rib, taters. Oh my gosh, bro, it was heaven. That that is a skillet you cannot go wrong. You mm -hmm. just can't. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know if there's something officially that makes it lunch food. I'm probably just overthinking that that part entirely. But a skillet. Man, when you get those big onions there too, like the big oh, yeah. caramelized onions, oh, that is that is top notch. I will not shame anyone who likes a Bloody Mary. If that's your thing, takes all kinds of kinds, okay? Mm -hmm. you, you all make the world go round. I truly think that tomato juice is only in business because there are five people left on this earth that drink it without alcohol, my mom being one of them, <laughs> and also because people discovered that if you dump alcohol in it and then put an entire meal on top of it to distract you from the fact that you're drinking tomato juice, it's not that bad. I'm more of a mimosa guy myself. Oh yeah. In case that wasn't obvious. Bottomless mimosas. Let's, let's, let's get into this. <laughs> I got takes. In the right setting, yes. Absolutely. If you have a day carved out for for bottomless mimosas, or at the very least, you've got some sort of built-in nap after maybe like, you know, two or three hour brunch, mm -hmm. sign me up. Bottomless, bottomless mimosas, let's make it happen. I just don't find myself in this situation that often. I don't. And maybe that's, that's a reflection <laughs> of me as a human being, and I need to create more of these situations. I need to seek them out. Mm -hmm. But I, I feel like I'm either driving or I've got to function as a human being in the latter half of the day, and I can't really get that good buzz going at 11 in the morning or something because we are not the 2 o'clock brunch crowd. We are the, we've been up since <laughs> 7 o'clock, and we got to wait four hours. Do we eat beforehand? How do we approach this? Mm -hmm. that's, that's the type of brunch people we are. But I... I'm much more in the two mimosa type range, two beer Connor, two mimosa Connor as well. Again, like what's the value if you're doing it for bottomless? Because they got to set that price at what, 15 bucks? So mm -hmm. you, you got to drink three, right? And you're kind of forced into drinking that third one. I, I don't know. I'm just, I like a mimosa, but I struggle with the logistics of it. And clearly I've overthought all of this. I, um, <laughs> so that reminds me of a story. One of the more recent times I had brunch, I went to this place that I'm not going to like shout out because it was a very, it was a very cool place. And I actually don't want people to go check it out because I probably uh -oh. shouldn't, I probably shouldn't have been there. Like it was a very like just local, local place. And they were bro, they, we ordered bottomless mimosas and they were bringing them out like every round. And as the day went on, we were there, we must've been there, dude, for like um, a couple of hours. Cause they were playing like 2000s, like bounce music, which is like rap music. And people were like dancing on the tables and stuff. And it was the most insane time. It was my buddy's like birthday weekend. So it was perfect. Cause we were just like, yeah, like not, trying to not get into anybody's IG live. Cause we were just like, this is such a wild chaotic place. But point being, that's what bottomless mimosas eventually creates, right? There's a good episode of Bob's Burgers about that. 
that, where they're like, you gotta serve food with the mimosas, because if not, you get brunch snakes. And brunch snakes are the people who show up just for the mimosas, they get hammered, and as a food service yes. person, you gotta get those people out of there and make them order some food to sober up. So, I think that I love them, I know my kind of limit for drinks, but I feel bad for the people who have to serve, you know, lightweight, bottomless mimosas, and then carry them out of the brunch place. Okay, that's a good point, and something I definitely didn't think of, because I, I, I'm, I'm out to consume food. That's the goal. Right. As you would say, we're, we're gonna eliminate some food. That's, right. that's what we do. Delete some food, yes. We're, yeah, we're gonna delete some food, that, that's, that's it. So when you add like the 15 bucks on top of the meal, I'm thinking to myself, well, you know, like I'm, not, I'm more here to eat. I'm not here as much. Like it'd be, it'd be great if that was, you know, if I'm having one or if I'm having two, but I kind of feel like that's its own separate thing. But if you're going there strictly with that mindset and you're thinking to yourself, well, I can have all I can drink for 15 bucks. Mm -hmm. That's a really good deal. It's also a very dangerous deal. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I probably won't find myself in too many of those scenarios anytime soon. But you won't be dancing on the table, no twerking for Connor? No, probably probably not at age thirty two. Maybe maybe age thirty three. I don't know. Listen, hey, who, never who say never, man. Happens. Never ever say never. Okay, uh, we got a lot of great responses in the Facebook group. We had the question: What's your go to brunch food? Bottomless mimosas, ya or nah? At what point does it become brunch and not late breakfast or early lunch? Uh, do certain foods need to be consumed in order for it to be considered brunch? Again, like I said, we're overthinking this, and by we, I mean me. <laughs> and then any brunch horror stories, please and thank you, of course. Okay, let's start with, we're gonna get some people that we haven't got to as much in these responses. We got a lot. Um, all right, Austin Foster says, best brunch is fried pork chops, smothered Ooh. in gravy with eggs and biscuits. Breakfast becomes brunch between 9.30 and 10.45. Past 10.45, it's just lunch. Surprisingly, never have I ever had a bad experience with brunch. The biscuits and gravy move early in the morning. <laughs> I think biscuits and gravy should be a dinner food. Sorry, I, I just know exactly what you're talking about. Where like you order yes. it, it's amazing, and then at like 10 a.m. you're done for the day. You are. I think it, I think it makes much more sense as dinner food, because it, it puts you in a food coma and it fills all those cracks in your stomachs like few things can. And mm -hmm. I love biscuits and gravy. I think biscuits and gravy is delicious. But doing that doing that early in the morning, man, like I just. I always have a tough time functioning. I sound really bad because now I sound like the person who can't function with bottomless mimosas or can't function with biscuits and gravy. No, <laughs> no, you know yourself. And I'll say real quick, one more brunch show. There's a place called Frank's off of Airline Highway in Baton Rouge. We delete food there and every single time I walk out of there, I go, oh, this was a mistake because exactly what you're talking about. The, especially with the sausage in there, you get a couple of those biscuits down and you're like, I have to drink 30 ounces of coffee or like slam a Red Bull or I'm cook and I have so much yes. to do today. <laughs> if, if that's if that's gonna be your one meal and you kind of know it going in, all mm -hmm. right, that's that's totally fine. Maybe that's just the way that I gotta approach it. Three square Connor's gotta get off that mindset, just be willing to say, <laughs> we're gonna ride this out, we're gonna get the biscuits and gravy and we're just gonna roll with the punches on this. Because mm -hmm. they're delicious and I shouldn't just, shouldn't eliminate them from my life. Nick Jones, eggs Benedict with pulled pork and a side of potato hash. Ooh. Now that I think about it, I'm not sure what separates potato hash from regular potatoes, but I feel classier saying hash. Mm -hmm. He's right. Mimosas are super overrated and too sweet, and it's never too late to order breakfast at brunch, but if you're but if you're ordering a cheeseburger at 9 a.m., then something is wrong with you. <laughs> Can we agree that lunch food is the worst of the day? Oh yeah, not it's even the close. Weak link, yeah. Right? 
So if that's your move to order lunch food at 9 a.m., I question that. Mm -hmm. I really do. Breakfast food, universal. You can have it all day. All day, no problem whatsoever. I, I can have pancakes at, at dinner, a waffle at dinner, eggs at dinner. Like th That will not bother me whatsoever. I don't do it as often probably as some do, but I have no problem with that. If you really are that desperate for a cheeseburger, not in the morning. <laughs> I think societal pressure would push me away from that and just find the closest replacement to it. You can get like a sausage and an and egg sandwich or something like that. That's basically the same thing. And kind of satisfy that craving without having that, that thing in the back of my mind of like, I just ordered a cheeseburger at nine in the morning. I get that it's America and I can do this, <laughs> but what, what are we doing here? <laughs> Why is that the move? You're talking about two very different Waffle House guys, right? You have Waffle House guy like Brittany who will get a waffle at like midnight. And then you have Waffle House guy who will get a cheeseburger at 9 a.m., which is very closely linked to the Diet Coke at 8 a.m. guys that are like school fights yes. that we've talked about. Great point. Your, your taste buds are not fully formed when you wake up. You don't need to put a whole cheeseburger with some lettuce and tomatoes and dressings in there. Just ride it out and get some eggs, man. Why is it that we accept like you know a sausage patty or something like that early in the morning but we don't accept a cheeseburger now i'm second guessing oh myself. no that's a really i don't know man i feel like it i was gonna say it comes with fries but what is that but a hash i don't know man why can you have steak and eggs in the morning and it's totally fine <laughs> but having a cheeseburger at 9 a.m i just shamed I don't know. Yeah, no, I, that's a really good point, man. I really don't, because at that point, it's just like I said, hash browns versus fries. Maybe I'm wrong here. Maybe I'm wrong here. I just feel like a cheeseburger is a grown adult who wears a tie and breakfast is a little bit unserious. Breakfast is a very unserious meal. What if you're of the Mark Wahlberg mindset and you wake up <laughs> at four in the morning and you've already had like three meals by the time it's nine o'clock? Then can you eat a cheeseburger at nine o'clock? Yeah, sure. At that point, it's like you're doing your you know, second breakfast or whatever if you're a hobbit Mark Wahlberg person. <laughs> and then your rules are just, they're all over the place at that point. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, Cody Self says, French toast is simply undefeated for breakfast, yes. brunch, lunch, or dinner. Bottomless mimosas, uh, yeah, yeah, please. Brunch is a mindset, an elite mindset at that. It's brunch when I say it's brunch. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily a horror story, but every single time I go to New Orleans, I have brunch and partake in multiple mimosas or Bloody Marys, and I can't help but notice every single time <clears throat> that I'm almost certainly the most intoxicated I'll be all year, and it's not even 1030 yet, and I can reach out and touch four people far more intoxicated than myself. New Orleans is a beautiful place, and it was made for brunch. Yes. That's sweet. Retweet. That's it. You, you, you're right. You're correct. I don't think I can add anything to that. I think I can only take away from that response. I, so I, I just won't. I will say really quickly, there's a place near the airport called Dots Diner in New Orleans that one time we got done with that Saints-Eagles beatdown in 2018, me and my boy Brady, who's an Eagles fan. We had the most delicious breakfast. It's like a diner. We were so hungover and got like a hash, right, with, with the little the, the, the potatoes and everything. And we were just sitting there smiling at each other because we got to the airport like early for us. And we were like, we have just enough time to hit this diner. And it was one of the most heavenly experiences of my life. So New Orleans brunch, Actually, very underrated. You're right about that. Do you have to be nursing some sort of hangover to consume brunch? Well, if you're not and you're in New Orleans, you're doing it wrong. You know what I'm saying? So I think that it's kind of sure. like chicken egg type vibes. Yeah, if you're if you're getting brunch and it's in Vermont, <laughs> chances are you're probably not nursing a, a, a significant hangover. Mm -hmm. That's not pulling you through. Brunch can come in all forms, I think, is what we're 
what we're realizing from this discussion. Okay. Yes. Yeah. And for whatever reason, I don't think we did brunch in New Orleans when we were there. We did not, come to think of it. And I don't, I don't know if there was a specific reason why. Were you just sober? Uh, running? No, I, Were you just sober running on the levees at seven? <laughs> I don't. I don't remember because I, I did a food tour on that Sunday, that final Sunday that we were there back in 2019, and it was incredible, <laughs> um, unbelievable. Like through through Bourbon Street, all that. Like it was just it was amazing, and we had brunch type foods, but it wasn't like a brunch tour. It was like one to four in the afternoon before I caught my flight back. But um, yeah, I want to have brunch in New Orleans after hearing all these responses. Mm-hmm. David Cozart says, uh, Dave Cozart, not David. Dave says, my go-to is chicken and waffles, which are a staple at most, most brunch places along with Eggs Benedict. Mm-hmm. Not a big mimosa or Bloody Mary guy. I always consider brunch to be between 10 and noon, but most of the places here serve it from 10 to 3. No true horror stories, but I hate when we go to brunch for what is supposed to be a quick meetup before getting on with our day, and the other couple ends up getting wasted, and we're there for hours. That <laughs> Sorry, that's a like a unique but non-unique experience because I've been there a couple of times. That's just that's tough. You're right. The issue is that they are at brunch and you are at breakfast. Right. <laughs> yes. That's brunch is a mindset. They are there to brunch and you are there to consume food. And look, each has its place. Okay. Everybody, everybody likes to be able to sit down to a massive meal and have their freedom to order anything on the breakfast and or lunch menu, or just combine everything, throw it into a skillet and consume it and just be like, that was a delicious brunch without getting hammered. You don't have to. This, this is and like- also this, everybody has- Good. I was gonna say, and also everybody has the right to, to spend three hours at brunch and you know enjoy bottomless mimosas or bottomless Bloody Marys. There are different ways to brunch. This, this is shaping into like a, we need to go get a couple's brunch just so that like we can drive you insane. Is like what I'm saying. <laughs> Because it's like, we're like, okay, boom, we're getting all the food, we're getting all the drinks, we're gonna go a little bit later. You're like, dude, I have stuff to do, man. I can't do this with you today. It's gotta be, it's gotta be understood from the moment. Yes. The, from the moment that you, you sign up for bottomless drinks at brunch, that, that's your cue. The, if, <laughs> if somebody does that and you don't, they're on a different wavelength than you are. That, that's, that's reality. Yep. And it's up to you to be able to decide how to navigate that moving forward. That's, look, this is the handshake we'll do. Whatever we actually, we end up doing brunch. We'll do it early, but we are getting hammered. That's how it's going to work. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, let's do, uh, let's do a couple more here. We've got some long responses. We've got some really good responses. Uh, let's do this one from uh, Cameron Jalufka. Cameron says, food, meaning like what is brunch? Anything served on a waffle, literally anything. Chicken, sliced ham, chicken fried steak, yes, that, and covered in syrup. Not a mimosa guy, I'll order a beer or a screwdriver, I'm not gonna mess around. Brunch is a state of mind, yes, confirmed. That said, the hours are however long, bangers on Rainy Street in Austin is open on Sundays. Horror stories, uh, sir, what can go wrong when you start drinking at 8 a.m.? Not much. You're, I, so that in that way, you're not just drinking a breakfast. You're drinking a brunch, yep. officially. That's when it takes over. Anything can be served on a waffle, I'm convinced. Mm-hmm. Eggs, eggs and waffles are, I haven't done the list of the top 10 most versatile foods. They're on that list. And they potatoes are right exactly there. Right. So you throw all those in here and it's like you got everything. Yes, and perhaps that's why you can 
use them so interchangeably with all those different foods. Mm -hmm. And that's why we do see them as a constant, as a staple, a foundation of so many different brunch meals. Now I'm just thinking about all the different ways I want to have potatoes. So hungry right now. (laughs) Yes, very hungry. All right, let's do let's do two more here. Uh, we got one from uh, Zachary Warden. Zachary says, "Eggs Benedict is slapping. Hollandaise sauce is fire. Mimosas are good too, but y'all ever had redneck mimosas? I've never heard of these. Some Miller High Life with orange juice. Not better than the original, but they are interesting." <laughs> The way this guy say, types, I'm so in on him. Let's go to this more. This guy, he yes. said fire, he said slaps, and he said redneck mimosa in like three sentences. Yes. That's, that's how you load a response up. I'd say 10 is a good starting point. 11 is pushing it. Before then, it's late breakfast, and after 11.30, you are just living a lie. <laughs> uh, don't have too many Bloody Marys and then do physical activities. Yep. Uh, I had I had been to a Bloody Mary bar where you can make your own and uh, overindulge. Then my friends invited me out on the river to go canoeing. Drunk me said, uh, screw it, off I went. When I started throwing up Bloody Mary all over the place, people thought I was thought it was blood and that I must be dying. Not a great choice. Zachary, we learned a lot about you, man. <laughs> This is one of the best per word long responses I think we've ever gotten. We've gotten a lot of per word short ones, but like, wow, yeah, throwing up Bloody Mary and it looking like blood is hilarious. Like, I've never even thought of that. As, as a non-Bloody Mary guy, that's a risk that I had not accounted for. You could scare the crap out of the people that you're with if things go south. And for this reason, I'm even more in, because I'm just one bad moment away from just being the, the, uh, a movie character. This is great. Yes. And I guarantee you at that Bloody Mary bar that he was at, they have all these different things. You can put a chicken finger on there. Mm-hmm. You can put you know, a mozzarella stick. You can put an entire slice of pizza on there just to distract you from the fact that you're drinking tomatoes. <laughs> That's it. Fair. I'll go to the grave with that take. I will. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, let's, do, let's do this last one here. Let's go to... Um, all right. We'll end with a horror story. Drew Page has one. Of oh boy, of course he does, yeah. <laughs> Drew says, one time me and my wife and best friend went out to brunch on a Sunday. They went hard on the mimosas. He got so drunk he accidentally left a $100 tip. Uh, I drive because I'm sober. When we get home, me and my wife go back and forth while she's on the toilet for 30 minutes and she can't go get her eyebrows done um, because if you're too drunk, they won't take you. I call every place in town, they won't take her. She eventually falls asleep. I sit down with my friend and start watching the Browns game with him. He immediately throws up into the dip can he had. <laughs> the dip cup he had, my bad. A lot going on here. Another law we have, or t- tradition, I guess, that we've learned about today is that apparently you can be too hammered to get your eyebrows done. I guess I've never thought of it, uh, but sure, if it's like a, we call five places and they all told you, yeah, then that's the case. I have a question here. (laughs) (laughs) I have many questions. The hole in this story, how do they find out that your wife was hammered and that, did you tell them up front these places who do eyebrows? As somebody who's never had his eyebrows done, maybe I'm just ignorant about the subject, but did you call them and say, my wife is pretty messed up right now. (laughs) Can you take her in? I don't know how else that would come up unless you're going 
door to door to all these different places and asking, hey, can you take her? I know she's sloshed. You see her. She's in here. <laughs> we went to brunch. We hit it hard. How else does that come up? You, you are putting this out there to the world if she's getting turned down by all those different places. I, unless you got kicked out. Maybe he left that part out of the story. Mm-hmm. Then again, this is a pretty transparent story, so I don't think Drew left anything out of this one. I'm, I'm going to make Lots an educated guess here. I think, I think knowing Drew... Uh, I think I could pretty evenly say like, okay, well, he's probably calling them like, hey, I'm just going to let you know my wife's pretty drunk right now. Okay. I don't want to waste anybody's time, but Easy, she's trying Brian to get it. <laughs> That's my Drew voice. Um, why, I can't do a fake Southern accent. Connor, I'm Southern. Anyway, <laughs> I'm so offended by that. Anyway, so point being, I, I feel like he just called. And he was like, hey, I'm just not going to waste anybody's time. My wife is drunk. What's going on? They were probably just like. You've thought to tell me one detail about this person. It was that she was drunk. <laughs> so no. I just, Drew, you're destined for failure. What, what do you expect them to say if that's if that's your opening line? She's really hammered. The chances of her sitting sitting still right now are not great. Right. <laughs> all right. Sure, come on down. I deal with drunk people all the time. No. Easiest way to talk here. You probably would have been better showing up in person to these places. I think you would have. Mm-hmm. If you had just shown up and said, put on a brave face, try not to be too hammered, and just let them do your eyebrows, I think you would have been able to get the job done and you wouldn't have had this issue and you wouldn't have had to watch your buddy puke while watching the Browns. Oh, wait, option C, do the weekend at Bernie's. Wait till she falls asleep, wait till she's totally knocked out, and then just take her into the eyebrow place and be like, hey, she's good, she's not gonna move, she's knocked out. <laughs> she may or may not be conscious, but. <laughs> Oh well. <laughs> All you it. know is that she wanted to get her eyebrows done and we'll be mad if that doesn't happen in that moment. <laughs> Gosh, what a brunch, man. Mm-hmm. You would think, you, you, usually the horror story there would have been just accidentally leaving a $100 tip. That's, that's why you don't carry a $100 bill in your wallet because you're gonna get drunk at brunch and leave it as a tip. Can't do that. Yep. Can't do it. All right, I think that we've gone long enough on that subject. <laughs> this is an all-timer, man. Ready. This is a great one. Yes. It was. All right, look, real quick, let's end with uh, uh, our lad of the week. You pointed this out to me like probably two hours after we finished recording last week. Mm-hmm. This was the, and I'm realizing you don't have, you don't have our, our notes in front of us. power is out, man. I'll, I'll tell you. You got it, yeah. Yeah, that's all right. You're pushing through. The viral video of the cow wrangler. For those who missed it, there was a loose cow on the highway that had elite speed, mm-hmm. elite escapability. SEC speed. Would have... Definitely. Definitely would have broken the ankles of that dumb steer Bevo, for <laughs> sure. <laughs> so what do the cops do when they're out of answers? They hit up a cowboy. They say, hey, come wrangle this sucker. Get him off the highway. We need that. So the cowboy pulls off the lasso of the year. The cow avoids a brutal death, at least for now. And the highway avoids a major accident. Easy lad of the week. If you can't root for a cowboy, who can, who can you root for? Facts. Yeah, I am from a rodeo and family. My parent. Um, which is like Godfather and Cajun. It was a Southeast champion rodeoer for a couple of years, like in the National Rodeo Association. He is a, you know. What? Seriously, yeah, my whole family's awesome. I am the least athletic member of my family by a mile. Like, Jeez. yeah, so so like uh, my whole family does like cow stuff. My, my papa that's Cajun had like a meat market. So big soft spot in my heart for 
the rodeo industry for cowboys, watching them, you know, growing up and everything, and thinking, well, I'm too goofy to do that, even at age five. But <laughs> it takes a lot of coordination. It's one of the most physically demanding sports. And so watching a guy, you know, with the nation's eyes upon him, with a chopper following him, and he pulled off, you know, the rope of the century, right? He, he got this cow figured out, got it back to its safe home. Lad of the week, easy. Can you picture the adrenaline of what you would have if you were riding down a highway on a horse trying to <laughs> wrangle a cow? That sounds uh, so awesome, yeah. It sounds incredible. I don't think I've ever experienced that level of adrenaline in my life. So to have the poise to be able to pull that off, very impressive, mm -hmm. very, very impressive. More, more impressive than anything we've done probably in the last week, I would say. Fair. We'll probably get some people that agree with that after the way that uh, Would You Rather went. <laughs> didn't like our choices we'll see mm -hmm. uh if you have not leave us a five-star review join the facebook group here name red on air with figuring it out or bold and brash thanks guys talk soon